Hey everyone and welcome to Icons and Outlaws, your all-access backstage pass to the legends of the music world. I'm your host, Jonathan Sayer. I am Jeff. I'm Logan. This is episode four, Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. Remember to stay to the end of the episode to listen to our version of Foo Fighters Wheels that you can find on Spotify and our own curated Icons and Outlaws playlist. You can find everything about the show over at IconsandOutlaws.com and make sure to subscribe and tell your friends. Jeff. Yes, sir. What is your first memory of the Foo Fighters? This is going to be a touchy one for me because I've been a fan from the demo tape. Because okay. I was really into Nirvana, yeah, and I've been with Foo Fighters since day one. So, damn. And Logan, so do you know who Foo Fighters are? I, I know the band. I didn't know the past thing, whatever. Where you know, like he's from something else. So, oh. yeah, I didn't know any of that. When yeah. I heard that, I was like, oh wow. You know yeah. who Nirvana is, right? Uh, something about Teen Spirit. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you that. <laughs> something yeah. about Teen Spirit. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're a freaking adorable. You know that you're adorable. I tried. Uh, I remember hearing, um, uh, it was off uh, Color and the Shape when it first came out. And I'm trying to think what song it was that actually like got me into the Everlong? Uh, it might have been Everlong. What else was on that? February one? Stars. Monkey mm. Wrench. Mon- maybe it was Monkey Wrench. No, Monkey Wrench was after that, wasn't it? No, nope, it was on that album. Was it on that yeah. Trust me, I wouldn't know. It probably was. <laughs> it was probably Everlong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. probably Everlong. But yeah, hearing that song, I was like, wow, because I was not a fan of Nirvana. Yeah, I can and see so that. listening to that, I was like, "This is totally different. This is way more my speed. It wasn't as grungy and yeah. whatever." And plus, and and no offense to uh, Nirvana listeners and lovers out there, or people who are into. I got you back. I got you back. <laughs> I'm a Nirvana lover. Who, who, you know, if you love um, Kurt Cobain or whatever, I just think that uh, Dave's got a, in my in my opinion, a better voice. Yeah, it's yeah. a different. It's just, a different voice. Yeah, it's just not a lot just, of rasp like Kurt had. Yeah, raspy rasp. You know, yeah. only uh, only a one from uh, what's his name Wesley from Puddle of Mud could oh, mimic God. that rasp. <laughs> mm, yes. You guys want to do yourself a favor? Get out there <laughs> and uh, you know look that up. Look up uh, uh, Puddle of Mud covering um, what song about was a it? girl? About a girl. Yeah, and it's just as good as MGK covering uh, System oh. of a Down. Yeah, oh. it's it's fantastic. All right, so let's get into this. <laughs> David Eric Grohl was born in Warren, Ohio on January 14th, 1969. Oh. Not too far away from us here at the uh, no. at our little studio. Mom uh, was a teacher, uh, Virginia Jean Hanlon, and dad was a news writer, James Harper Grohl. In addition um, to uh, being an, uh, an award-winning journalist, Dave's dad had also served as the, the uh, special assistant to Republican congressman and U.S. Senator Robert Taft Jr., Wow. So he was kind of a big deal yeah. for what he was doing. Yeah. Wow. When Dave was young, the Grohl family moved to Springfield, Virginia. Uh, when he was seven, his parents divorced, and he was raised primarily by his mom. At the age of 12, he began learning to play the guitar. He grew tired of guitar lessons and whatnot and instead taught himself eventually uh, playing in bands with friends. And we know what that's like. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you, you just want to play. Even though you don't really know how to play, you still want to play. It doesn't matter. You just got to have the the mozzi, right. as they would call it. The matzo ball. At 13, Grohl and his sister spent the summer at their cousin Tracy's house in Illinois. Hmm. Cousin Tracy, who sounds amazing, and I, I'm, I, I'm hoping, I think it's, a, I'm not hoping, I think it's a female, but you know, some dudes can be named Tracy too. It's a female. Yeah. Okay. She's in, he talks about her a lot in the book, his, oh, okay. his recent book, yeah. which is really good, by the way. Awesome. Well, he, uh, she, cousin Tracy, introduced them to uh, punk rock mm. by taking the pair to shows by uh, several different uh, punk bands. His first concert was Naked Ray Gun. At the Cubby Bear, 
in Chicago in 1982. Grohl recalled, quote, from then on, we were totally punk. We went home and bought Maximum Rock and Roll, a punk subculture music zine that ran from 1982 to 2019, which is crazy that it just ended a couple of years ago. You know, there's something to be said, and not to sideline here, no, but that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. There's something to be said about punk rock music. When I can't wait till we get into some when we do an episode about a punk band because those fans and listeners are so diehard and they are diehard for life. Oh, yeah, for sure. I have a couple friends who are diehard punks and like they still legit they'll be they'll be 70 years old in a wheelchair rocking out black flag and right. pennywise oh yeah for like, sure like well that, that stuff's timeless though you know what i mean not only does it remind you of your younger years yeah but it's also just timeless music but you look at most music genres and you kind of you kind of adapt over the years right so like we do right we we've been into super heavy metal we've been into new oh, yeah. metal but punk rock people stay punk rock people yeah, like their whole they, life. There's something very, about that. Very devout. Yeah. Very devout. Well, he goes on to say, you know, we, we, we got these magazines and tried to figure it all out. In Virginia, he attended Thomas Jefferson High School as a freshman and was shockingly elected class vice president. Shockingly. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he just seems like the greatest guy ever, you know. Uh, he taught himself to play pieces of songs by punk bands like the Circle Jerks and Bad Brains. And using his clout as vice president would actually play them over the school intercom before his morning announcements. Huh. So you could you imagine how cool your school would be if I you'd know. like be walking down your hall and you'd hear like the circle jerks playing before you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it'd be amazing. Um, his mother decided he should transfer to Bishop Ireton High School in Alexandria because uh he was smoking too much weed and it was affecting his grades. He stayed there for two years and, uh, you know, one of those actually repeating his first year. So he was basically a freshman twice. Oh, wow. Yeah. After his second year, he transferred yet again to Annandale High School. While in high school, he played in several different local bands, including a short stint as a guitarist in a band called Freak Baby. Nice. Freak Baby. It was during this period that he thought it was a good idea to switch to learning drums when Freak Baby kicked out its bass player and reshuffled its lineup. Okay. Dave took um, on the role of their drummer. And history was pretty much made. You know what I mean? That's just pretty much what it is. So that's it. Uh, we're actually done. Um, he became a drummer. And uh, yeah, the band then changed their name uh, to Mission Impossible. And uh, that's history right there. Huh. We're good. Yeah. Good stuff. See you guys later. Thank you All for right. listening. Tune yeah. in next week. Yeah, tune in next week. It was a short <laughs> one. Sorry. Of course I'm kidding. <laughs> but yeah, he decided that he wanted to be a drummer. And uh, Dave has said he did not take drumming lessons and instead learned by listening to Rush. Oh, boy. Wow. And punk rock bands. Can I ask you something real quick? Oh, boy. Since you did the notes on this. Yeah. Do you have the thing in about his teeth? Um, Is that in here? Um, possibly. If not, I'd like to explain it. All right, just hold it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. just hold it. Because it's really that. interesting. Yeah. Uh, all I'm saying is, as uh, for our listeners out there, obviously this is episode four, mm -hmm. uh, fairly new podcast for everyone out there. Thought it was Number four. Number four. I thought it was a new hope. I'm sorry. Yeah. What? I'll oh, stop it. <laughs> and, um... This is a very, it's full of details, mm -hmm. nice. full of details. And it's absolutely awesome because I mean, I learned some stuff. I've been a fan for a long time, you know, not nearly as big of a fan as Jeff is, but just a huge fan and learning it as much as I did. It was pretty awesome. So obviously insanely talented and possibly, uh, you know, robot and, you know, rush drummer, Neil Pert was an early influence. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like he, that guy's got to be definitely a robot. robot. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. He just passed away a couple years ago, right? Yeah. He had a... Uh did he have like a brain cancer or something? I'd have to look it up. It was something yeah. like weird and it he went quick. Out of like, the blue. Because yeah. he was playing with like Avenged Sevenfold and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, Wait, dude, really? 
Yeah. This wow. guy's like <laughs> Neil Peart is he is ridiculous. Every if you look drummer, up drummers, just yeah. watch him perform like a solo. Yeah. You just you sit back and you go, well, first of all, if I ever wanted to play drums, I'm not doing it now. <laughs> Second of all, how does his limbs move like that? You know what I mean? Not He's only insane. that, like he had the most elaborate kit out of any drummer, like ever. When, yeah. he, when they set up his kit, like you could literally, like, he sit on his throne, you could do a full 360 and there was drums. I mean, he had gongs. He had 15 different cymbals and splashes one? and like 15 different roto toms and regular toms. I mean, dual uh, bass drums. Like it, the kit was enormous. Is he the guy that had to be dropped into his drum yes. kit? Yeah. That's wow. that's how big it was. It went completely he around. Literally him, had one of everything <laughs> on his just, kit. Yeah. crazy so uh dave says um when i got uh 2112 a rush album when i was eight years old it fucking changed the direction of my life i heard the drums it made me want to become a drummer so not the vocals by the way no exit the way at the distance yeah no no and if you're a fan of rush listen we'll talk about them because they're an icon for sure Dude, I'm they're not okay. a fan the thing with rush is they're phenomenal yeah. musicians all three of them yeah. are like the top tier talent of their or of their instrument okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the vocals are so hard to get around. He's very, what would you call that? Because you're a singer. Nasally. Like, that, yeah, but it's nasally. And it's he's all like a, he, falsetto He's like, very, very high register. Yeah. Yeah. You like, know, he's, he's very, very When you high first register. hear it, you, you think it's a girl almost. Yeah, yeah. It's like that. Yeah. He's just got that very high register. He's great. An amazing bass player. Holy, um, what's his name? Um, uh, Getty Lee. Yes. Getty Lee is an amazing bass player. And I feel like it just kind of like, well, I'm just going to play bass and sing. You know, but yeah. they're like, super progressive really way progressive like you know you and 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 like riley and stuff you guys uh which is your brother my other son yes, 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 yes. <laughs> for that's your brother if you don't know <laughs> for the listeners um you guys are really into like progressive metal and stuff like that well yes. these guys were doing it before them mm-hmm. who is the, the, the singer to the one band that has a high register like just like him that was like the mid oh you're talking about Coheed Coheed and cambria yes yeah oh he's yeah, yeah. up there too like that oh yeah like yeah, got the very <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Cody and that's a that's a dude. Yeah, yeah. Just got a high a, register. He's got a big afro, doesn't he? But a hellacious guitarist. Oh well, yeah. Hellacious. Yeah, everybody in that. Group yeah, oh my god, impressive. hellacious. So during his beginning years as a drummer, Dave Grohl cited John Bonham as his greatest influence, and eventually had Bonham's three rings symbol tattooed on his right shoulder. Who's Bonham? The, the guy with the really long hair. We talk about it all the time. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who's John Bonham? Oh, hold on. Where, where is it at here? Is it this one? You suck. Yeah. <laughs> who's who's Bonham? John Bonham? Think of a blimp. A blimp? Yeah. Led Zeppelin? Hey, hey, there you go, buddy. Zeppelin. <laughs> yes. Bon- Bonham was the first OG, like, holy shit drummer. Yeah, he was pretty really? like, He was the original where people were like, wow. Yeah. Him and uh, the drummer for The Who. Yeah, Keith uh, Moon. Keith Moon. Keith he was Moon a was nuts. Nu- can't wait <laughs> to do them. Yeah. That dude was crazy. He made uh, Pete Townsend, the guitar player, half deaf. Yeah, he blew up his he drums. blew his drum set <laughs> up on stage. <laughs> wait, what? And didn't tell him. He didn't tell the band. He put all these, like, what was, were they, uh, uh, H1000s? Oh, he wow. He stuffed his kick drum with it, and they played a live performance. And no one in the band knew except for Keith. And they, at one point, he hits the drums, and he stands back, and it. I think it's on video, and it explodes. And it made Pete Townsend, the guitar player, half deaf permanently for life. Oh my lord! Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that was on a was that a uh, was that on a, like a, a TV show that they were on or yeah, something like something that. Like, I don't know. It, was this, it wasn't Sullivan. It wasn't that old. See, I thought it might have been. 
Maybe. I don't yeah. we'd have to look it up. Yeah, we'll have to look. Yeah, he was a nut, dude. That's like, crazy. Yeah. So his band Mission Impossible changed their name once again to just the word fast before breaking up, after which Dave joined the hardcore punk band Dane. Oh my god, this it's not brain damage, it's Dane Bramage. Dane Bramage. <laughs> that was the name. Spelled differently. Yeah. yeah. In December of 1985. That's creative. Dane Bramage ended in uh, March of 1987 when Dave up and quit without warning to join a band called Scream, having produced the I Scream Not Coming Down LP. Many of Dave's early influences were at the 930 Club, a music venue in Washington, D.C. He said, quote, I went to the 930 Club hundreds of times. I was always so excited to get there, and I was always bummed when it closed. I spent my teenage years at the club and saw some shows that changed my life. So he was like we used to do when we were younger. Oh, yeah. We were always hanging out at Peabody's, Flying Machine. Yeah. yeah. It was just, that's what you did. Friday, Saturday night, you, you were going to a show. Candy huh? Shop changed my life, man. Remember the, remember Candy Shop? Are you being facetious or serious? Serious, man. Really? They were awesome. Okay. Like, not like super <laughs> talented, but like their stage performance where they're all going just bonkers and crazy. Yeah, they had the chick bass player, right? Yeah, yeah. I thought they were fun, man. Yeah. Like, I was like, oh, I want no, to They, see they that. were cool. I wouldn't say they, they were, like, iconic or anything No, no, like no. That, but, but they, I mean, like, their stage performance and everything was what made me want to, like, yeah. be stupid on stage and, like, do crazy stuff. Yeah, they were they were definitely out there in, in Puppet, where you end up Puppet, <laughs> calling Ken Oboy out right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As a teenager in D.C., Dave briefly thought about joining shock rocker punk metal band Guar. yes. Dave was thinking of really? actually joining Guar, wow. who were looking for a drummer around this time. At age 17, Dave auditioned with local Washington, D.C. favorites Scream to fill the vacancy left by the, uh, the departure of drummer Kent Stacks. In order, in order to be uh, considered for the position, Dave lied about his age, saying he was 34. Wait. <laughs> I'm kidding. He did say he was older. Yeah, but oh, okay. yeah. can you imagine being 17? Like, <laughs> right. yeah, I'm actually 34. <laughs> Why no. did they have an age requirement, though, yeah. to begin with? Probably because you had to be Touring? 18 to get in most clubs and yeah, stuff like that. that. Makes yeah. sense. Today's surprise, the band asked him to join, and so he pulled a Jay Z, which was last week's icon, and dropped out of high school in his junior year. He has been quoted as saying, quote, I was 17 and extremely anxious to see the world, so I did it. Which, I mean, now we're talking about not one, but two icons who dropped out who are worth more than, you know. Are you seeing the formula? <laughs> so I should have dropped out of high school. You should No, have. not at all. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> you should have got a guitar. No. Dropped out of high school. No. Got in a van and just drove the country. What if I dropped out of high school with my recorder? It may work. It may have worked. Yeah. You never know. I was pretty good. Is it a plastic recorder or oh, of course. wood it was, one? It was plastic. You could yeah, see Yeah, plastic it. wouldn't work. No? Oh, they would damn. They would call your bluff. Really? You'd have to have a wood one. You have to be legit. Like I a even case. Like, you open the case and there's a wood one like oh, I didn't have a case. with I, Logan's in the, your initials on it. I, I knitted my own thing for it. Oh, okay. It was you in my have, home you, class. You have a uh, koozie for your recorder? I did. A oh, koozie? Yeah. <laughs> I got a koozie. Is that what it is? Well, yeah, you got to keep it nice and warm, you know? All right. Yeah, you say right. so. <laughs> Over the next four years, Dave toured extensively with Scream, recording a couple of live albums. Their show of May 4th, 1990 in Alsey, Germany, being released by Tobi Hausinger as Your Choice Lives, or Your Choice Live Series Volume 10, and two studio albums, No More Censorship and Fumble, on which Grohl penned and sang uh, vocals on the song God Looks Down. Okay, so he was he was starting to get his groove. Mm -hmm. During a Toronto stop on uh, their 1987 tour for Scream, uh, Dave played drums for Iggy Pop at a CD release party held at the El Macambo. Iggy Pop. That sounds familiar. Yeah, does it? As you're looking at me like, I don't know. No, it does actually sound familiar. I just don't know anything about them. Or He's another pop I or, uh, punk song? icon. The, the train, something train. 
Oh, his God. famous song. It's in the usual suspects. Yeah. Iggy, um, Iggy was, uh, he's always never has a shirt on. Okay. And he's still ripped. He's like 107. 90 years yeah. old and he's like shredded. <laughs> like yeah. he looks like yeah. a, like leather, like just, it's crazy. He's yeah. You know who else looks like that, by the way? Recently I've seen Anthony Kiedis. They just released a new album, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I saw on a TikTok they were performing at a record store. This was like two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And he walks out with his shirt off. Anthony Kiedis has got to be what, like 60 something by now? At least late 50s. Dude, he is still jacked oh, and yeah. shredded. Like wow. shirt off and everything. And he's yeah. like doing his thing. I wonder still- if there's drugs involved. <laughs> and tanned. Yeah, they all look like a leather bag. Yes, that's yes, crazy. <laughs> so yeah. what's cool about this show, it actually became known for uh, the, um, the, the well, should I say the show, the the venue they played at, the El Macambo. Mm-hmm. It was actually best known for the 1977 surprise show by the Rolling Stones, which became popular when the prime minister, Pierre Trudeau's wife, Margaret Trudeau, showed up and partied with the band, with the Rolling Stones. So the prime minister's wife, Showed up and partied with the Stones back Dude, in 77. That's, wow. that's going to be an amazing conversation between that's them. awesome. In 1990, Scream unexpectedly disbanded mid-tour when bassist Skeeter Thompson left the band. Okay, so Scream is over with now. So what is Dave going to do? Well, we obviously can't talk about Foo Fighters without discussing Nirvana. Nirvana. They'll definitely have their own episode, so we won't get too into them, but there's some things that we do have to discuss, obviously, in order to build mm-hmm. Dave's repertoire. While playing in Scream, Dave became a fan of the Melvins and eventually befriended them. Okay, came friends of the Melvins. Melvins are awesome. During a 1990 tour stop on the West Coast, the um, Melvins guitarist Buzz Osborne took his friends Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic of Nirvana and uh, took them to go see Scream, Dave's band. Okay, Dave called Osborne for advice after Screaming uh, or Scream disbanded, and Osborne informed him that Nirvana, this new upcoming band, was looking for a drummer. Mm. He gave Dave the phone numbers of Cobain and Novoselic, who then invited Grohl out to Seattle to audition. Grohl soon joined the band. That's pretty much how it happened. That's how he became the drummer of Nirvana. Wow. Poor uh, Chad Channing. (laughs) He was the original drummer to Nirvana, could you imagine? Especially Uh, now, after all that money has been made over all these years and the the fame, and he's just like, yeah, I was the guy that was replaced by Dave (laughs) Grohl. So bass player Chris Novoselic uh, later said, quote, we knew in two minutes that he was the right drummer. That's awesome. Dave told the UK-based magazine Q, quote, I remember being in the same room with them and thinking, what? That's Nirvana? Are you kidding because on their record cover or record cover, they look like psycho lumberjacks. <laughs> I was like, "What? That little dude and that big motherfucker? You're kidding me!" There's a there's a really cool uh, where they interviewed Butch Vig because mm-hmm. he produced Nevermind, mm-hmm. the first Nirvana album. Yeah. Um, well, actually, it's not the first; it's the 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 big one. Right, right, right. But uh, they interviewed Butch Vig, and he was talking about how Kurt called Butch, and he's like, "Dude," and like Butch does this voice. He's like. Dude, Butch, we got this new drummer. He's amazing. And he's like Muppet from the, or he's like Animal from the Muppets, man. You have to see. This is Kurt talking to Butch Vig. And Butch is like, okay. <laughs> and then they brought him in to do Nevermind. He's like, yeah, he was right. He was just like Animal from the Muppets. He's, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a crazy man. And uh, so the whole um, Lumberjacks thing yeah. and that quote. Um, so they were signed to Sub Pop. Mm. Sub Pop was an indie label out in Seattle okay. that pretty much. They're still still around, yeah, by the Sonic way. Sonic Youth was one Sonic of the big Youth. Ones. They had um, who's um, um, people out there right now going. It's this one. Um, what's his name? Chris uh, Soundgarden. 
Soundgarden was part of that. Yeah. Like so, they they basically were building this entire scene out there. But they started with a a, a little magazine they sent out a zine, and then they turned that zine. And if you want to watch a really great um, story about sub pop, and to be honest, I we should probably do an episode on them. I think because I mean they are they iconic. have a lot of good artists yeah. on there too. Yeah. Yeah. And so like yeah, I think uh, Screaming Trees, yep. like all these guys, Meat Puppets, Meat Puppets. They uh, I love the Meat Puppets. So much. Do you? Oh my god, I love. I was puppets. never really a fan. Like I really? like I like some of their songs. I love like, Meat Puppets. Never... Yeah. So um, they ended up turning it into a record label, and then there was a lot of stuff that happened. But if you want to watch a really cool documentary about it, um, it's uh, on Hulu, and it is called, oh, man, um, the, 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 hold on, what's the, the Dark Side of the 90s? And they have an episode about Sub Pop. I'll have to check that out. It's awesome. Yeah. It is so awesome. It's I, I was sitting there watching and going, holy crap, I didn't know any of this stuff. Yeah. You know? So... When Dave joined Nirvana, they had already recorded several demos for the follow-up to their debut album, Bleach, produced and recorded by someone you just referenced, Butch Vig. Initially, the plan was to release the album on Sub Pop, but they received a ton of label interest based on their demos. Now, that really screwed Sub Pop up, by the way. So Sub Pop was kind of like all in on them, and then all of a sudden they decided to go with a major. Ooh. Yeah. Dave spent the initial months with Nirvana, um, initial months with Nirvana traveling to various labels as the band shopped for a deal, eventually signing with DGC Records. In the spring of 1991, the band entered the infamous Sound City Studios in Los Angeles to record Nevermind, as seen in Dave's amazing documentary, Sound City from 2013. So it's a great documentary. So Give yourself, you know, go out, watch it. It's the Neve so Council. Good. Yeah. The Neve Council. Dude? It's so yeah. odd, which he now owns. Right? Yes, yeah, it's in actually, it's in his studio. They tore down a wall to get it out of that damn studio because they were closing the studio down. Mm -hmm. And that place recorded Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac pretty much started there. Rage Against the Machine, Metallica, Tom Petty, Johnny Cash. I mean, wow. huge names. And what's really cool is um, he did an interview. Dave Grohl did an interview about two years ago, and he had uh, who's the guy from CNN with the white hair? Oh Jesus! Oh, the, I know the you're young talking. guy. Yeah, He's really popular. Yeah. What's what's his name? Um, I don't watch the news. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. he interviewed Dave Grawl and they're at his studio and he was showing the Neve Council and they zoomed in on it and I didn't know this. Everybody signed it. That's awesome. It's like oh, John wow. Fogarty signed it and then uh, Stevie Nicks signed it. Well, that's worth its like, money or you know what I mean? So it's like, like you got all these faders and then on the right side you got all these Sharpie markers from all the famous people that recorded and signed it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's wow. pretty, cool. pretty cool. So the album Nevermind from Nirvana was released later that year and exceeded all expectations becoming a worldwide commercial success. It was huge. At the same time, Dave was compiling and recording his own material, which he released on a cassette called Pocket Watch in 1992 on indie label Simple Machines, which is hilarious that, you know, on a cassette, you know, yeah. most people nowadays are like, what's a, what's a cassette? Yeah. So rather than using his own name for the project, Dave released the songs under a pseudonym, Late. That's what he called it, Late. Interesting. And so he'd go and record songs. He'd put them on a cassette. He'd write whatever was called on it, and it was under Late. Hmm. In the later years of Nirvana, Dave's songwriting increased. In his first months in Olympia, in Washington, here in the United States, Kurt Cobain overheard him working on a song called Color Pictures of a Marigold. Yeah, Marigolds. And they wound up working on it together. Dave would later record the song for Pocket Watch, uh, his cassette thing. And Dave stated in, two in a 2014 episode of the documentary series Foo Fighters Sonic Highways that Kurt kissed him when he first heard a demo of Alone, Easy Target. Um, okay, how is it alone and easy target? Yeah, because it's a plus symbol. Yeah, alone and easy target. Okay. Yeah. Um, so according to Dave, quote, I told him I was recording, and he said, um, "Oh, I want to hear it." 
for goodbye. He was sitting in the bathtub. This is amazing. He was sitting in the bathtub with a Walkman on, listening to the song, and when the tape ended, he took the headphones off and kissed me and said, oh, finally, now I don't have to be the only songwriter in the band. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. I think you're, we're doing just fine with your songs because uh, Kurt wrote all the songs for the band. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, Nirvana would uh, actually jam Dave's song on sound checks during their 1991 European tour. So, you know, he's got a little bit of whatever, but he's so humble about it that he's just... He's like, no, you know, no, no, no. We're we're doing your. This is your thing. You do your thing. I'm just writing songs back here. Right. You right. know what I mean. You got to remember too, Kurt Cobain. His writing style was so. Uh, I don't know what the best way to say this. I, I, subpar, but not. So, pretty much every Nirvana song is like three three basic bar chords. Right. It was just the way that he structured it, and like the the. The pattern of it well and the intensity of what he was and saying then, like the vocals yeah. on top of it made it original but i mean like any guitar player and i'm not like talking trash about kurt cobain any guitar player could pick up a guitar and play a nirvana song pretty easily right yeah it's they're not complicated whatsoever it was more about what he was saying <clears throat> versus what he was playing yeah that you makes know sense. that's what and i'm not a again i'm not a nirvana fan i wasn't a kurt fan but i appreciate him for his ability to write the songs he wrote because it hit people but it also hit people in a way because you're coming off of the and again i don't want to get too far in nirvana because we will talk about them one day but um you're also coming off of the the 80s hair metal stuff right? which was complicated What's that? Which was complicated. That yeah. that music was, I mean, you had guitar solos, you right. had all kinds of key changes and stuff. I mean, that was complicated music. But it was also glam right? and glam associated with it. And I feel like people were just kind of over that. It wasn't for your blue collar working man that like hates his job, you know, which is why I believe that country music has such a great following because they actually have a, a they recognize and whether it's a fake recognition or a, a real one, right. they recognize in their music like people work hard. And you go to a work that you hate or a job you hate, you work hard all week, you want to crack a beer open, you want to put your toes in the sand, yeah, you know, they yeah. say, and then they write a song about it. And listen, that guy that's singing that song mm -hmm. doesn't do any of that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> he may have before he became right. huge. Right. But that the guy singing that song right now doesn't do that. Kurt was like, he was like the every man and everyone looked at him like, who is this creep? And listen, he was a good looking dude too. He was, I mean, he, he was not a bad looking guy at all. But he just had this like really um, somber kind of way about him that people connected with because he was very avant-garde. Remember how we talked about Buddy Holly and Buddy yeah. Holly wore his glasses and he just looked like the the everyman. He didn't look like Elvis. Right. People connect to to other like you know celebrities when you that guy's like me. Right. I I, I could be that guy. Right. And then immediately it becomes this, and that's what Kurt did. Kurt. I mean, because if you listen to his music and stuff, it's depressing as shit. Oh, yeah. It's super depressing. But, he, I mean, look what happened. You know, yeah, the guy yeah. obviously had issues and whatnot. So, so anyway, yeah. So, we definitely have to do a Nirvana oh, one. Yeah. And I have no idea what song we're going to do for Nirvana. Oh, I got some ideas. Oh, boy. I got some ideas. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave reluctantly had, uh, held back his songs in the beginning. In a 1997 interview, he said, quote, I was in awe of Kurt Cobain's songs, and I was intimidated. I thought it was best that I kept my songs to myself. So, he did. During the sessions for In Utero, Nirvana's third and final studio album, the band decided to re-record Color Pictures of Marigold and released it as a B-side on the heart-shaped box single with a slight title change to Marigold. Mm -hmm. mm. Dave also wrote the main guitar riff for Senseless Apprentice, uh, another song on the um, In Utero album. Which is a very, very signature drum for that. It's like... 
and like he so he came up with that drum beat and then the guitar for it yeah he wrote the guitar riff yeah yeah and he would do it at sound checks like if you ever go back and watch any like uh nirvana live videos or whatever and they're doing sound checks you would always he first thing you do is he get on the drum he'd be like interesting yeah it's pretty cool in a 1993 uh, MTV interview, Kurt had said that at, at first he thought the riff was kind of boneheaded. It's just a generic, <laughs> generic riff, um, but was happy with how the song developed. Part of this development process can be heard in a demo on the Nirvana box set uh, with the lights out, released in 2004. Cobain had said that he was excited at the possibility of having uh, Chris and... Um, uh, Dave contribute more to this band's songwriting. Right. You know, it's a lot of pressure being, you know, you get signed to a huge label and then all of a sudden, like, I have to be the only songwriter. That's a lot of pressure. Right. Especially to duplicate what you've done already. You sold millions of records. Uh-huh. And guess what? Now you got to do it again. <laughs> or you're out of a job. You know what I mean? Well, that's why a lot of people don't know about Insecticide, which that was between Nevermind and In Utero. Oh, a full album that, like, see, you, I mean, you got, you don't even. It's it's a full I, album I've that they heard came out of. With. Yeah. Um, Did they put it on a different aneurysm? Label? The song aneurysm yeah. is on yeah. it. Sliver, Benison. I like Sliver. I do like Sliver. Yeah, but I mean, like the general people like didn't even know it existed because he didn't like come with the same polish that he did on Nevermind or in Utero, so it kind of got disappeared. But if there's an album in between those two, that's crazy. Yeah. So before embarking on their 1994 European tour, Nirvana scheduled session time at the popular Robert Lang Studios in Seattle to knock out some demos. Uh, the recording session was only three days long, and Cobain wasn't there for most of it, probably because he's hanging out with what's-her-face. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Chris and Dave worked on demos of their own songs. They completed several of Dave's songs, including future uh, Foo Fighter songs Exhausted, Big Me, February Stars, and Butterflies. On the third day, Kurt finally arrived, and the band recorded a demo of a song later titled You Know You're Right. It was to be Nirvana's last studio recording. Okay, because oh. unfortunately he passed away. I shortly. didn't know they worked on the songs though. Yeah, he was gone. That's interesting. Yeah, they sat there. February Stars is an amazing song. And think about that too. You know, you look at a lot of bands, and like, I mean, let's just say, okay, this is way on the other end of the spectrum. But you have a band like Slipknot. It's got like nine members. If one guy doesn't show up, you still got eight members there. Yeah. If you're in a three piece and yeah. one guy doesn't show up, you know, that's like us sitting at this table right now. If Logan doesn't show up, you and I get to freaking do whatever we want. You know yeah. what I mean? You don't have freaking seven, six, whatever other people going blah, 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 coming in your ear, you know? Yep. So it's kind of cool that they sat down and were just like, we're going to, he's not here right now. Who knows what he's doing? We we all know what he was doing. But yeah. let's let's work on some stuff, you know? So after Poor death, Ringo never had that option. <laughs> 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 just, they, even if he was the only one there, they just put him in the corner yeah. anyways. Give me the sticks, Ringo. <laughs> I wrote the octopus is gone in. <laughs> yes, we know. <laughs> it's on the refrigerator. Go look. So after the death of Kurt Cobain in 1994, the band known as Nirvana broke up. Dave received numerous offers to work with various artists, and there were rumors saying he was going to join Pearl Jam. Dave almost accepted who is going to be another Icons episode because... I wasn't a big Pearl Jam fan, but I, after diving into some of their songs now, I appreciate them so much more. I've always been half in, half out. Yeah. Like, I can appreciate the great music. Songwriters, great songwriters. But the, the gnarl, what they call gnarling vocals. Yeah. <laughs> where, where nobody knows what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, could, it could be anything. <laughs> he does, and apparently he writes it down, so you can look at it, and you're following along going, 
You're not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not no. what you said. You know damn well you didn't. Right. So Dave almost accepted a position as the drummer for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh, wow. Well. This is a good one. Yep. He later said, quote, I was supposed to just join another band and be a drummer the rest of my life. I thought that I would rather do what no one expected to me or for, for me to do. Okay. So he was basically everyone wanted him to. Oh, yeah, they're good. <laughs> Sorry. I gotta Look, give me that. Looking at our Dr. Squatch. Yeah. That smells better than the Star Wars. That's oh, so good. So, um, so instead, you know, a lot of drummers, they play uh, drums in a band or a guitarist, they play a guitar in a band and then they just go to another band. Right. He was like, I'm going to do something different. And remember, he's been working on these songs. Right. Right. So instead he booked time at Robert Lang studios again in October of 1994 and began recording 15 of his own songs. Dave played every instrument and sang every vocal part and on the record uh, with the exception of one guitar part on ecstatic, which was played by Greg Dooley of the Afghan wigs. Hmm. And you probably have no idea who that is. No idea That's fine. About. They're they're a smaller you know, like band, but they were a uh, they were Seattle, a grungy. Yeah, Seattle. they were part of that yeah. whole thing. He completed an album's worth of material in only five days and handed out cassette copies of the sessions to his friends for feedback. Oh wow! So he just went in, recorded this, said, "This is what I'm doing right now. Tell me what you think." Dave hoped to keep his anon- an- anonymity. There you go, and release the recordings in a limited run under the title Foo Fighters. Taken from the World War II term, uh, Foo Fighter used to refer to unidentified flying objects. Foo Fighters. The Foo, the foo Fighters. <laughs> Quote, around the time that I recorded the first uh, Foo Fighters tape, I was reading a lot of books on UFOs. Not only is it a fascinating subject, but there's a treasure trove of band names in those UFO books, he said. Quote, so since I had recorded the, uh, the first record by myself playing all the instruments, but I wanted people to think that it was a group, I figured that Foo Fighters might lead people to believe that it was more than just one guy. Silly, huh? Continuing, Dave contends that a better band name could have been created. Quote, had I actually considered this to be a career, I probably would have called it something else because it's the stupidest fucking band name in the world. <laughs> well, picture this. You're, you're in arguably the biggest rock band of the world. At that time, At for that sure. Time. Absolutely. I mean, like Beatles big, right? right? So everybody knows your name. They know your face. They know everything about you. And you're going to go start another band What's the first thing those people are going to do? So they hear, this isn't Nirvana. This right. isn't what you came from. Right, right. He's going to get criticized, and no one's going to pay attention to the music. Right. So he was a genius to hide behind it and let the music speak for itself until they found out it was him, and then he uh, still did get ridiculed. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So the demo tape uh, that he put out circulated the uh, music industry, creating a serious interest among record labels. This was the drummer from arguably the biggest rock band in the world, right? Yeah. Of course it was. Dave put together a band to support the album. He talked to Nirvana bassist uh, Chris Novoselic about joining, but they both decided against it. Dave said it would uh, have felt really unnatural, for, or really natural, excuse me, for them to work together because obviously they were, you know, they worked on Nirvana for a while. And he's right. not that great of a bass player. He's really not. I mean, he's got like heart yeah. and he's got performance. Right. He's but, definitely got performance. But talent wise, yeah. it's not like he's doing anything. I watched Chris Novoselic on MTV. They were playing live at yes. the end of their set, threw his bass up in the air. <laughs> And it came down, and he tried to catch it, but instead it hit him right in his forehead mm-hmm. and, like, split him open. Yep. Like, the dude was nuts. He was nuts. And he's huge, too. He's, like, six foot four or five or something like that. Wow. Like, just a big, big, gangly dude. Yeah. He would have his bass, like, the strap on it to where it was, like, the guitar was, like, down, like, past his crotch. And he would do this, like, yeah. like dance thing every time he played because he's just big giant. Right. You know? And these are guys, and again, going back to Nirvana, and unfortunately we have to keep doing that, but these are guys that didn't care about being famous they didn't they didn't want that in fact that a lot of people will say that's what actually led to the 
to the suicide of Kurt Cobain. Yeah, he couldn't handle it. Yeah, so you've got these guys who are huge. I mean, huge. And, and Logan, I can't even express to you. Like, the, I, I mean, who would you put that into context today? Uh, you could probably Papa Roach, like a Miley Cyrus. Okay, like a household name. Okay. Okay, where they were the kids, insane. all the kids in the house know everything about this band. They could tell you 20 songs off the rip. So like a Miley Cyrus or whatever, who's big right now. I don't know who's big right now, though. Yeah, but regardless, yeah, any yeah, yeah. any big band you could think of right now, that's, I mean, that that was them. Okay. But bigger, but they were crazy. But and he wor also... Worldwide, by yeah. the way, not just United States. I mean, like the entire world. They were huge. It's crazy. So, but he also said uh, it would have been weird for the others, you know, for, for them to be together and it would place more pressure on them, on, on him because not only you've got two thirds of Nirvana, Pat Smear too. Cause he was in Nirvana at the end. Sorry. Well, Pat wasn't in this yet. He was in Nirvana though. When, right. When they were like, did their last tour. Yeah. So Pat really. didn't, Pat wasn't in here yet. What, what do you have the notes in front of you? No, I, and just to prove swear, it, I don't swear to God. <laughs> I told you, I, I, I know, stuff I like know. That's why I knew I had to go hard with this one for you. So, so right now we're I'm good. liking it so far. I'm learning some stuff by the way. Good. So having heard about sunny day, real estate breaking up, they were a band sunny day, real estate. Dave snagged the group's bass player, Nate Mendel and their drummer, William Goldsmith, that poor son of a bitch. Right. <laughs> we'll talk about it. But Nate Mendel, dude that's a talented bass yeah player. he's awesome yeah. like he's he knows awesome. his scales yeah. his notes his pat like he's a legit bass yeah, player he is, he's seriously awesome dave then asked george ruthenberg to join the band as their second guitarist george better known as pat smear played as a touring guitarist for nirvana after the release of in utero uh pat was one of the founding members of the iconic punk band the germs the germs and Dave was a huge fan of the germs. And and Pat is the guy you see. He looks like he's almost like a, either Arabic or Asian or something like yeah. that. And he's always got real short hair and always has a smile on his face. Yeah. He just looks like the kind of guy you and just want to hang out with. He's, yeah. always, he's still the, to this day he smokes on stage. But Pat is not a talented guitar player, but he's got the performance and he's loud. That's what that's what Dave yeah. always liked about him is he's just like, he's, like they always have to turn him down because he's just like an animal. Right. You know he, I mean? he is seriously like the best rendition of a rhythm player you'll right. ever find. Good. Good. That's a that's, good, that's good what way to put it. Yeah. He's not a lead guy. Right. He's a good rhythm player. Yeah. And a good rhythm player. It, it's just as hard to find as a good uh, a, a solo, you know, what I mean, or yeah. a lead player. It yeah. really is. So Dave then licensed the album to Capitol Records, releasing it on his new record label that he started himself. Roswell Records. Get it? Roswell? UFOs? Yeah. Foo Fighters? Foo Fighters. You get it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Aliens? So he's really big into it. The very first Foo Fighters show happened on February 19th, 1995. They played above a boathouse in Seattle in front of friends and family. They made their official live public debut on February 23rd, so not long after, in 95 at a gig at the Jambalaya Club in Arcata, California. They just happened to be in the area mixing their album when a local promoter asked the cover band, The Unseen, who was playing, if Foo Fighters could open for them. And they agreed. Imagine being that cover band. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right? Because the people, people knew it was Dave at that point, right? Uh, yes, I would assume so. Okay, so yeah. you have every Nirvana fan in the world right. dying to get into the show. Right. And you're in a cover band, and they're going to open for you. And, oh. then, and then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but eventually Foo Fighters becomes like the band. Right. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. So Dave and his band Foo Fighters then embarked on their first U.S. tour in April of 1995 in support of the Stooges and Porno for Pyro's bass player, his own solo thing, Mike Watts. Okay, so they went on a tour to support Mike Watts. This tour featured an additional new band called Hovercraft. 
an instrumental outfit featuring um, Pearl Jam singer Eddie Vedder. Yeah. Hmm. Dave refused to play large venues or even do interviews to promote their debut album. Okay, their first single, This Is a Call. I love that song, too. Maybe that's the song I heard first. It has to be. Yeah. It has to be. You had to have heard those. Songs. those even Big Me with the Mentos yeah. video. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The yeah. Mentos. yeah, you had to have heard the. Yeah. That's the original album. Because I, okay, all yeah. right. So I thought that was from Color and the Shape. All right. Even though I just did all the research, I still, yeah. <laughs> whatever. So This Is A Call was amazing. It was released in June of 1995, and the album Foo Fighters was released in July, containing the following, uh, the, or the follow-up singles, I'll Stick Around, For All The Cows, and Big Me. Big Me is amazing, and yeah, like he was talking about the video for it. It's the Foo Fighters one, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the uh, what is it? Uh, what's the one where he, they were in the, the, it almost looked like uh, the Evil Dead thing with the big hand. That's Everlong. Everlong. That's the Everlong. Yeah. Okay. So Big Me is at that time, the big, the big joke was there was always Mentos commercials. Okay. And at that time, it'd be like, when you're, what was the jingle? It's like, when you're feeling down, have a Mentos. And it was like a construction worker and he pops a Mentos and he has a better Yeah, day. yeah, I don't remember it all. Yeah, so those yeah. were like big commercials at the time. So they made a spoof on that. Okay. And everything in the video was like the guys in the band, like one of them was dressed as a construction worker and one of them like saves a dog from getting hit by the car and then they eat a Mentos. <laughs> but yeah, they, they called them Futos. Yeah, Futos. And they, <laughs> they uh, there was one where they were going into a limo or whatever. Remember? Yeah. They were like crossing through the limo or whatever. And the guy's like looking at them like, yeah. what's going on? And all of a sudden, you to see Dave Grohl just smile with his photos like yeah <laughs> they, they were like the first ones to do funny videos yeah. like parody videos as, as a rock band who writes serious rock songs yeah you would not know it from their videos right no truthfully yeah. well yeah because the first video I ever saw from the Foo Fighters was what is it my hero or whatever and that that video mm-hmm. like that was such a powerful video because it was all about like, yeah. corruption and like V for Vendetta-esque like it was really dope yeah but I mean so if you look at like uh, if you go further into it and we'll talk about a lot of their stuff here mm-hmm. um, they they just they add this hey we're a rock band but we don't take ourselves seriously right. that's number one like I mean right now like like I just said he didn't want to do big arena tours or anything like that he wanted to keep it low because remember unfortunately and fortunately at the same time I'm considered the drummer from the biggest rock band in the world. Right. I don't want people thinking that I'm riding the coattails of that fame. Right. I want this to be my own thing. And then all of a sudden you start realizing that this guy not only is an amazing musician, but he's got a hell of a sense of humor, a great personality, and he's probably one of the most humble people in the world, even though I think, yeah, he might be Satan. Anyway, <laughs> we, I mean, we experienced that on a small, 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 small Very scale. Small, yeah. Well, we went from a race the gray to Shinoa. So in a race the gray, we had pretty well-known name. Oh yeah, a, a, a fan base. Not people well, knew well us. Signed Cabal. to a major label. Yeah, and yeah. then we we turn. <laughs> Would you say it's not as well known as Cabal? But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then we turn and go into this band called Shinoa with uh, ex guitarist from Kamira, Jason Hagar. They'll yeah. be an icon one day. And when we did Shinoa, it, it was like the polar opposite. I mean, it wasn't too far, but it was pretty far different. The music vibe and style, so right. totally different. Yeah. You know, when we first started, we had all these ETG fans coming to see. And it, they wanted, you could tell, like, they wanted ETG. They didn't right. want this new stuff. Yeah. I bet, luckily, it worked out for us, and they, everybody dug it. But, like, you... Until you, we both got fired. Yeah. When, when you're, <laughs> you're known welcome, for something... You're welcome, Jason. Like, <laughs> when you're known for something, and you make your mark on something that significant, yeah, that's what people expect, no matter what. Yeah, like, that's We're right. always going to expect that. Same yeah. with movie directors. I mean, look how many movie directors produce movies, like Chris Nolan. Yeah. So he did Inception, Interstellar, The Batman. Mm. You know, when he does these amazing movies and then he comes out with this new one tenant and everyone's like what the fuck is this 
What, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> Everyone's like, what is this? You know what I mean? Like you, you set yourself up, you set the bar for yourself and that's kind of what he's going through. Okay. Yeah. Is people are want to see Nirvana. They want the three chord. Da, 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 yeah. da, you know, it's the same thing with like disturbing device. Nobody really cares about device, but they like nobody the cares about disturbed. Don't even bring them up. <laughs> sorry, Don't sorry, ever sorry, bring sorry, them sorry, up sorry. again on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to be sick. <laughs> so Foo Fighters toured for almost an entire year and then jumped right back into the studio. This time it was Bear Creek Studio in Woodenville, Washington with English producer Gil Norton, who produ- uh, produced the Pixies, Jimmy Eat World, Counting Crows, and so many more. Oh, yeah. All those. Oh. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, when you watch that, uh, the, if you get a chance to watch the, the documentary I was talking about with Sub Pop, yeah. the singer of Counting Crows uh, was in a different one where they were actually a different episode where they were talking about um, uh, the Viper Room. Yeah, he was a bartender there. He was a bartender there. Yeah. He was on Rogan's podcast. That's yeah. how I know. He, he seems like an amazing guy, by the way. Okay. I know. He seems truthfully like, I want to hang out with that dude. He's, I always thought he was just like this weird, quirky guy with dreads. Sha la la la. Yeah. yeah. He, and he was dating Courtney Cox for a long time. Or was no, Jennifer, he really? Or was it Jennifer Aniston? One of the two. I think, I think both at one point, point in time. But he met her at the Viper Room. Wow. Yeah. And he only worked there because that's the only place he felt comfortable. Like he's... He's in this band that's starting to blow up, and Counting Crows got huge. Right. You know, you got, what is it? Uh, Long D- December. December or Mr. Jones. Mr. Yeah, Jones. Mr. Jones. Huge yeah. songs. And then he only felt comfortable being there because they made him feel like family. So he literally was the beer slinger there. Wow. He's a he was, great singer, by the he's way. He's awesome. Yeah, he's like awesome. Yeah. Um, what's his name? And, and, and Adam Durant. 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 Something some so, the There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. He just seems like a very, very cool, humble guy. And when you watch that, please, everyone out there, if you have Hulu, even if you don't get it, yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested. I want to. You got to watch it. It's called uh, the Dark Side of the '90s. Is huh. what it's called, and it's amazing. It's so there's some that are weird. Like they did one on like uh, you know boy bands, and I was kind of like, Meh. so yeah. this is kind of like uh, the movies that made us, but for music. Yes, that's cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really cool, and they have like interviews with people like Adam from um, from Counting Crows yeah. in there. It's great. It's awesome. Damn, I'm gonna have to re up my Hulu now. Yeah, it's awesome. So Dave, of course, wrote the songs, but the band had a hand in arrangements. Okay. Nearly finished, he took the rough mixes to L.A. to finish his vocal and guitar parts. You're going to love this. As he was listening to the mixes, something just didn't sound right. It wasn't what he envisioned. The drums weren't perfect. Not that they were bad. Dave was a drummer. He knew drums. Mm. He had a career based on playing the drums and could arguably be considered one of the greatest rock drummers of all time. So he set up some drums, mic'd them up, and re-recorded the drums for the entire album. (laughs) All of them. Dave wanted Goldsmith, mm-hmm. the guy who actually played the drums right. for that, and he basically replaced. Uh, he, he wanted him to remain as their live drummer. Like, dude, I, you know, I'm sorry there was something about this. I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm nitpicky. I want to keep this, but I want you to stay on and be our live drummer. Yeah. But he was rightfully butthurt. Yeah. So Goldsmith quit. He quit what would become one of the biggest rock bands ever. By the way, <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> By the way, that album. Yeah. So we're talking about the color and shape, the couleur, the couleur, couleur, the couleur. Yeah, C O L O U R. So that song you were talking about, my hero. Yeah. You know the drum pattern to that, right? Vaguely, yeah. yeah. That is a very, very difficult drum pattern to play. I mean, it's like kick. It's like kick going the whole time, consistently. With your toms. While you're doing toms, and then getting cymbal splashes in here and there. Like that is not. An easy part to play. Come yeah. on, we'll do that now. Let's go do it. Say what? <laughs> it's like, come on, we'll do that now. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> so I actually have a quote from uh, recently from uh, drummer William Goldsmith. He said, quote, it was a pain in the ass. Like, that's the only band that I wish I could just, like, remove that from. 
He continued by saying, it doesn't matter what happened because the Foo Fighters are like Disney. Everyone wants to love Mickey Mouse. Everyone loves Mickey Mouse, so it's a difficult thing. But sometimes Mickey Mouse is a little rough around the edges. <laughs> it's a no-win scenario, so I'd rather remove it. I think the best thing to do is have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Mickey. He has gone on to say that he has no ill will towards Dave. So, AKA, he heard the songs was like, I can't play that, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> much. Yeah. It is, in a nutshell. And we'll talk a little bit about when Taylor comes into the fold, too. Oh, Obviously, we'll talk a lot Taylor. about Taylor. Shortly after this, Pat Smear decided to leave as well, claiming he was exhausted and burnt out. Okay, mm. it happens. Yeah. Goldsmith and Smear were replaced by the late, great Taylor Hawkins and former Scream guitarist Franz Stahl. Now, yeah, keep in mind, they were touring, I mean, every single day of the year yeah. at this point in a U-Haul like wow. a, a van carrying a U-Haul trailer. So that's in the uh, back and forth documentary. Remember we watched that together? And we were like, hey, we know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But like they were touring every single day. And Pat Smear was like, All right, I need a break. And Dave would be like, okay, well, we have a break coming up in May. <laughs> so Pat would keep going. And yeah. then like April would come by and be like, oh, you know that break we had? We're going to Japan. Jeez. And Pat would be like, oh, my God. And Dave he couldn't take it anymore. Arguably one of the hardest working people in rock and roll. Oh, yeah. I mean, truthfully, Before that's he's he at. was. Yeah. yeah. So now, Stahl, Franz Stahl from Scream, was fired before the recording of the group's third album, There Is Nothing Left to Lose, in 1999. So now, drummer Taylor Hawkins had played as Alanis Morissette's drummer from June of 95 until <sighs> March of 1997 in support of her Jagged Little Pill and Can't Not tours okay and, and you, you stop it i like alanis I, I, I think she's and she's great live god is oh she is so, she oh my god she doesn't sound like a dying cow <laughs> like a cow with a Dude, spear no, in its back that's on its sing. last breath when she did um what is the the song from um uh, the, the, the nick cage movie the city of angels the really dark one it's like real man damn it i can't ironic think of or it. No, no, ironic. no 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 that i no 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 yeah 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 that's exactly how it goes right uninvited that's yeah. it when she did that song and i'm a big fan of that song i'm a fan of hers yeah and when she did that live though dude like she that woman can sing better now than she did when she first started her career yeah, and she sense. and she was like a cheerleader or something when she first started out. Y'all, she'll be on the show. She, yes, she will. Man, that's gonna. I'm gonna be drunker, <laughs> above, <laughs> not sober to do that one. So listen, I thought it would be really cool to hear Taylor explain how he wound up being Foo Fighters drummer and Dave Grohl's best friend. This is all from interviews Taylor Hawkins and Dave Grohl did with NME Entertainment Weekly and Kerrang. Yes, I did a lot of research, brother. Just a quick little side note: yeah. NME is where we get most of our news for for the show. Yeah. Yes. It, well, apparently they're doing something good. So, <laughs> so quote, I'd met Dave at this uh, um, U.S. radio station K-Rock Christmas show because Foo Fighters were on their way up and Alanis Morissette was through the effing stratosphere at that point. Me and Dave just looked like long lost brothers in a weird way. We had a similar vibe and I don't know why. I remember my friend playing with uh, the Foo Fighters before I met Dave and watching them goof around backstage. He said to me, that guy could be like your brother. And sure enough, when we met, we just thought we're brothers from another mother. It was instantaneous, so much so that Alanis Morissette just said, what are you going to do when Dave asks you to be in the, the drummer for the Foo Fighters? I was driving with my girlfriend at the time, and we were listening to K-Rock, or K-R-O-Q, K-Rock. I heard William had departed, the drummer Goldsmith, and uh, they were looking for a new drummer. So a lot of people think that, um, that Dave called Taylor. Taylor immediately called Dave. He said, quote, I, I said, I heard you guys are looking for a drummer, and he said, well, do you know any? 
I thought Atlantis wanted to uh, go in a more laid-back direction, and it seemed like the right time to jump. Atlantis didn't need me. I basically said to Dave, I'll play drums for you, and we jammed a couple of times. I remember I was at home watching Showgirls with my girlfriend and Dave. <laughs> I know, right? Showgirls. Yeah, horrible movie. Oh, wow. And Dave called to ask if I wanted to join. Initially, Dave never thought Taylor would leave Alanis Morissette, and Taylor's allegiance was always with Alanis. That's why he asked Taylor if he knew of any good drummers. Right. When Hawkins agreed to join, all Dave cared about was that he was getting a friend, not just a great drummer. Dave told Entertainment Weekly, quote, I sent Taylor a tape of one of the new songs. It was Monkey Wrench. I went over to his little house in Topanga Canyon. He sat down and played for three seconds, and the first time he hit a snare drum, I knew it. Dave knew Taylor was the guy. Quote, I swear to God, I was like, that's all I need to effing hear. I love you as a person. You've just given me uh, hearing damage for the rest of my life in three seconds. You have to be in the band. Later, Grohl said Hawkins came into his life after uh, like an F5 tornado. Quote, when he joined the band, his drumming was the least important factor. I just thought, I want to travel the world with this guy. I want to jump on stage and drink beers with this person. That was my biggest concern. That's so cool. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just amazing. The, the connection and the, the friendship they had is, it's like I got chills right now. Oh, yeah. Kind of a little teared out there for a second, but especially considering the passing of him yeah. just recently. It's just, it's so cool how the, like Dave, who was putting this band together, touring all over the place, was just like, I love this guy. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, he's a great drummer, yeah. but that dude's going to be like my BFF forever. You right, know? right. Yeah. So Alanis didn't take Hawkins leaving personally. They remained friends over the years. Taylor has said he would have uh, been delivering pizzas if it wasn't for her. She was the first person who gave him a break in the music world. Quote, she gave me a lot of space to do what I wanted. It was probably the biggest album of the year, referencing Jagged Little Pill. Yeah, I, he took a financial hit for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they were, fighters were making that kind of money. Alanis was huge on top of the world right then. And there was a lot of pressure on her. She was having to learn to be this leader on the job, which isn't easy. But it was really Aww. one of the most fun times of my life. Aww. Stop it. Guy. <laughs> I'm sorry, guy. <laughs> the band announced Taylor would be its new drummer on March 18th, 1997. His first appearance with the Foo Fighters was in the music video for... Uh, okay, let me think. Ooh. Oh, uh, it's not ever. Do, do I have it? Hold on. Is it, is it this one? What if you only had um, one chance? My, how the turns have tabled. One answer to answer correctly would you answer correctly what is monkey wrench it is right yay <laughs> although the song was recorded before he actually joined the band okay so that's not him playing monkey wrench it's dave it's dave gotcha yeah foo fighter's second album the color in the shape was released on may 20th 1997 through capital and roswell records with the legendary singles monkey wrench everlong and my hero blasting through the airwaves the album charted at number 10 on the Billboard 200 and was nominated for a Grammy in 1998 for Best Rock Album. Wow. It has sold more than 2 million copies. Now, side note, before we start getting to all the, the records and the stats and stuff on this, I honestly thought they were like Metallica numbers. For and, their album sales? Yeah, and they're no, not. Yeah, no. They're not at all. They're like way lower than I thought. Yeah. And they're still like, what that does though, it shows me how little rock and roll has an impact nowadays. You know what I mean? Even in the early 90s, mid-90s, late 90s. It? Yeah. yeah. It sucks. Because I think we could all agree that the Foo Fighters music is genuinely top tier over Metallica. Yeah, I, I absolutely I agree. And Metallica will be on Metallica's on great. Sure. Don't great. get me wrong. Absolutely. And they're like original for what they do. But like when it comes to like talent and creativity and like for songwriting, like having emotion and being able to feel a song, 
I'm sorry, but I'm not feeling Enter Sandman. I'm feeling Everlong. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. But again, uh, and listen, there's one thing that everyone out there needs to listen or understand when we talk about music is that it's all in the ear of the beholder. Right. Okay. Everybody has a different taste for stuff, and and I'm never going to judge anyone for unless you like um um Five Finger Death Punch. Five Finger Death. Yeah, that's the only band. Okay, I would say that. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Wash it all away. The band. The band then traveled uh, traveled to Dave's home state of Virginia and. 1998 to record their third album there is nothing left to lose dave and pat smears replacement all right fran stall they just couldn't see eye to eye as songwriters dave said quote in those few weeks it just seemed like the three of us were moving in one direction and franz wasn't franz was dave's childhood friend and he was in scream with him and the decision to fire him uh, from the band was super hard on him. He's uh, the one that actually came out like in a documentary interview and said franz he said that uh he said imagine being in a room with Dave Grawl and you have these chords and you have a melody and you're like, Hey, check this out. And Dave says, yeah, that's good. Okay. Let's do this one. Oh yeah. So he was like, yeah, that sucks in a, in a polite way. Dave was trying to tell him like, yeah, your stuff's not good enough. We're right. going to do my stuff. Yeah. But he couldn't, he didn't make that connection. That would be hard right. to hear. And ugh, ugh. then shortly after Franz's termination, bassist Nate Mandel called Dave and said he was quitting to rejoin, rejoin sunny day real estate. Cause they were doing like a reunion thing. Mm-hmm. But the next day, he changed his mind and decided not to leave. Did you did you hear the story <laughs> behind that, though? Uh-uh. So Nate called. At that time, everything was kind of like falling apart. So Nate called Dave and, like, and he's like, you know, I, I'm done. I'm going to do this Sunny Day Real Estate reunion. And Dave's like, at that point, because Franz had just been done and then all the other stuff, Dave's like, fine, fine, leave. <laughs> so him and Taylor went out. At, they were staying at their mom's in Virginia. They went out and rented a rental car and got completely trashed. And drove through like fifty mailboxes oh, and shit. hit a tree and a fence <laughs> and like destroyed the rental car and then they fell asleep on Dave's mom's floor and like she woke him up in the morning because Nate was calling. This is like the next day. She's like, Your your friend Nate's on the phone and he's all hung over and like puking and trying to answer the phone. And then Nate said he was sorry and he made a mistake. He's like Dave's like, That's fine. He's like Let's just do this. Okay? And like hook up the phone. <laughs> After a night of debauchery, they destroyed a rental car and like got annihilated. That's why you get the insurance, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so Dave, Taylor, and Nate spent the next several months recording their third album at Dave's home studio. Uh, there, there is nothing else to lose. And it spawned mega hits like Learn to Fly, Stacked Actors, Generator, and Breakout. You make me want to break out. So Learn to Fly's got your boys in there. Which we definitely need to do a show on Tenacious D. Tenacious D. Oh yeah, Jack Black, Jack baby. and Kyle. Oh, yeah, Jack and Kyle. They're, they're KG. The, the pilots. They were. Yeah. No, no, no. Video. Were they the pilots? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait to do that. It's gonna be so. I can't you know wait Tenacious to do. Oh hell yeah, dude! Pick okay. a Destiny. The Pick a Destiny. Movie. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Good. My favorite part of the entire movie is when like they first meet or whatever, and he's like, ding, 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 the whole time, dude. It's so great. <laughs> I hate how people don't like Jack Black anymore. Like oh, he gets so much flack. Well, you know what it is though, is that he's the same. Oh, yeah. in everything he but does. He's funny. Yeah. He, I'm a fan. But I he think has I think range in his same shenanigans. Dude, though. Jumanji was hilarious. Oh, yeah. He's like the teen girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm saying, yeah. like, he's got good range. He just, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's he good. always kicks back. Kind of like Will Ferry. He always kicks back to the old school, like, yeah. stupidness, you know? Yeah. What's what's that new guy that was in uh, Pitch Perfect that acts just like Jack Black? Oh. You said his name, and I can't stand it because he's literally Adam Devine. Yes. Divine. He is yeah. a complete. He is a rip off for sure. Yeah. The way he even does like the what do 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 that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. dude, calm down, man. 
Ah, uh, I'm, I'm glad this is not a movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's the other podcast we're going to release oh, yeah, that's the next in a podcast? couple months. Yeah, yeah. So wait, so we're going to be making our own movies too? Yeah. yeah oh. Yeah. <laughs> so Learn to Fly off this record was the band's first single to chart on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. And again, I kept thinking these guys were like number one on the rock charts. I kept thinking that, and they really weren't, which gives so much credence to how hard they worked to get where they were. This was what year? Do you have a, a timetable? Um, let's I mean, I'm see. sure we can look it up, but I'm trying to guess what what was what else was going on at that time. Is that was it new metal? This is two thousands. Yeah. So it was corn and yeah. like basically were destroying yeah. the charts yeah. and like blowing the place up. Yeah. Yeah. So right before the album was released, the president of Capitol Records, Foo Fighters record label, Gary Gersh, was forced out, and with the help of a key man clause in their contract, they were allowed to leave Capitol upon Gersh's release. So in other words, they had a clause in their contract that if he's not there, we're not there. Gotcha. They left Capitol to sign with RCA, who then bought the rights to their previous albums from Capitol. Well, that was nice of them. Yeah. Well, they probably knew there was money in yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Upon completing their uh, the recording of the third album, the band started auditioning guitarists. Foo Fighters selected No Use for a Name and, what I didn't know, Me First and the Gimme Gimme's guitarist, Chris Shefflett. You didn't know that? I had no idea he was in Me First, dude. I thought, oh, dude. Nope, no it's idea. Him and his brother are in I that. Knew, I knew. I When I read that, I was like, get the f- what? His brother is in Me First and the Gimme Gimme's too. They Me First started. is uh, that punk cover band that does nothing but, they do nothing but covers, but it's all punk style. Okay. I was on Warp Tour with them in 2001, okay. and they are phenomenal, and I had no idea. Yeah, so he I thought you knew been, that. No, because no, this is, was that the time? No, no, this was... So I was. He could have been there. No, he was. He he might have been there, but he wasn't in the band at the time. He has the same birthday as me, by the way. Does he really? Yeah. Chris Shifflet does. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. He was only supposed to come into the fold as the band's touring guitarist, but he was hired on full time before they recorded one by one their fourth studio album. And he was young. Like yeah. I watched the audition tape where they brought him in for the first time, and he was playing their songs and stuff. And he was like, God, he looked like he was seventeen years old at the time. He might have been. But he could shred oh, yeah. Great like guitarist. MF-er. Right around 2001, Dave and Taylor, being diehard fans of the band Queen, established a relationship with the future Icons Not Laws episode subjects. That's Queen, by the way. I love Queen. Who's in Queen, Logan? Who's Fred, the singer? Freddie Mercury. Hey! I got to get an applause in here. Oh, no, no. I got this one. That is correct. Hey. Mm. Just think, after like one full year season of this show, I'm gonna be a snob. you're going to be like, the biggest music nerd. Ever <laughs> yeah, it was funny. You'd be at the bar and you'd be like, be like actually, us. actually, we were we were driving home. Sid and I were driving from the store, or whatever, last week, and she was talking about like Taylor Hawkins or whatever, and, I, and she was like mentioned something about it. And I was like, no, actually, this, this, and this. Ah, <laughs> she was like, she's like, it's not even released yet. Shut up. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I know. So Dave and Taylor had the the distinct pleasure of inducting Queen into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that same year, and joined them to perform the 1976 classic "Tie Your Mother Down" with Taylor playing drums alongside Roger. Roger Taylor. Queen's legendary guitarist Brian May even added a guitar track to Foo Fighters' second uh, cover of Pink Floyd's Have a Cigar, which was on the soundtrack to Mission Impossible 2. In 2002, guitarist Brian May contributed guitar work to uh, Tired of You and on an outtake called Knucklehead. The bands have performed together on several occasions since, including VH1 Rock Honors and Foo Fighters' headlining gig at Hyde Park in London, England. They're huge, huge Queen fan. Like, any interview you watch of Taylor Hawkins, he always talks about Queen. Because Queen is always. awesome. That's why. <laughs> he said that he used to watch him when he was a kid, and he wanted to be he wanted to be the drummer with the high falsetto. Because, you know, he um, Roger Taylor, right? He did all the high falsettos yep. and, like, Bohemian Rhapsody and all that. Yep. He's like... 
not only is this guy just an amazing, phenomenal drummer, he can sing higher than anybody. He's like, <laughs> I want to do that. Like, so that's what he like strived to be. Ah, oh, that's hilarious. So at the end of 2001, the boys got together to record their fourth studio record, One by One. They spent four months in an L.A. studio, and something was off. The spark just wasn't there, and the band were having issues internally. So Dave stepped away for a while and worked with Queens of the Stone Age, helping them complete their 2002 record, Songs for the Deaf. Which is awesome, It's great. It's a great record, yeah. Touring commenced for Foo Fighters and Queens of the Stone Age, uh, but the internal struggles were still there, and just as they were about to call it quits, they hit the stage at Coachella. Coachella, I'm sorry, Coachella. Dave and Taylor wanted to complete the album, and the next day, they rocked the festival and agreed to do so. All it takes is one show, baby. That's right. One show. Back in the saddle. That vibe comes out, and you're like, let's do this. Almost every part of the album was scrapped and re-recorded at Dave's studio in Virginia in only 10 days. Seven songs from the original uh, recording of One by One eventually leaked, but the full album has never been released of the original recordings. And there's a funny interview with Dave where he goes like, it's it's really awesome. So he's like holding his hands out like this, both hands, like a balance, right? Yeah. He goes, here you have an album that was produced, paid for with millions of dollars by a record label and recorded over weeks and weeks and weeks of time. You hate it. And then you have the same album that was done for free in my house and we won Grammys. <laughs> like, yeah. It's it's a really cool. Dude, that's seriously yeah. how it is. Like yeah. you know, we recorded, and this is no offense to uh, Jeff Tomei, uh, who recorded the Erase the Gray EP or whatever. But I go back and listen to that, and I'm like, man, I wish I was more critical. Yeah. But this guy was like, this guy had done big stuff, and I'm like, I'm gonna let him do what he does. And then when we got done with it, I'm just like, I'm, I'm I've never been a fan of this, especially the snare tone. That snare sounds yeah. like someone smacking an empty beer can. It's almost like Lars from the uh, St. Anger album. Yes, yeah. It's, it is it's, it's, lots it's of horrible, horrible. Yeah. So, which is funny that you said that, too. They, uh, that record that eventually leaked that they never actually put out mm-hmm. has often been referred to as million-dollar demos <laughs> because they never released the record. The band finally released its fourth album, One by One, in 2002. This record had uh, hit singles like All My Life, Have It All, Low, and Times Like These. Oh, God. We know that one, right? Song. It's a great song. It's times like these that something I don't know. Learn to live again. There it is. What I said. (laughs) (laughs) And all my life, dude. Yeah, all my life is great. This was Chris Shiflett's first recorded appearance as part of the band, and where Taylor played all of the drums. So it wasn't Dave anymore. It was Taylor. One by one, topped the charts globally and sold a million units in the U.S., bringing home a Grammy for Best Rock Album in 2004. Nice. Recorded in his house. Yep. Grammy easy. Supporting one by one by touring for a year and a half, Dave wasn't in a hurry to record another Foo Fighters album. He was more interested in doing an acoustic solo record, but it turned out into a full band ordeal. They built a new studio in Northridge, Los Angeles called Studio 606 West and began recording their fifth album, In so, Your Honor. Who's the guy from Geffen Records? Oh, Jesus. What the hell's his name? I know what you're talking about. He's the one who told Dave to do this. Oh, really? Because he was talking to Dave and he's like, you know, we have all these rock songs but I have all these pretty acoustic songs and the guy from Geffen records. I can't remember. He's a famous guy. The guy that owns, I know who Geffen. you're talking about. I just can't think of his he name. He says, why don't you do them both? And Dave was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah. So that's when they did that double CD. Right. So it was a two disc set with full blown rock songs on one and on one CD or one half and the other with acoustic tracks. It was released in 2005 and had uh, the hits DOA resolve in one of my all time favorite songs. Best of you. The album also had guest performances by Led Zeppelin's John Paul Jones, 
Queen of the Stone Ages, Josh Holm, and Nora Jones. David Geffen, by the David way. David Geffen. Yeah, of course, because yeah. that would be his name. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> Bill. It also featured their new keyboardist, Rami Jaffe, of the Wallflowers, who wouldn't become a full-time member until 2017. That I did not know. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay Goldstein, who did the cello for yeah. Nirvana, actually, she played with them, too. She did all the cello in... Uh, we actually talk about that here in Pretender. a little bit. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. No, no, sorry, you're good. Sorry. You're good. You're, you're excited. I like it. I, I like it. I love it. I like it. <laughs> in Your Honor was nominated uh, for five Grammy Awards. Okay. Uh, hit the number one spot in five countries and number two in the U.S. selling more than a million copies. What? You're looking no, at? No, I just re- realized I said the wrong music video earlier. It wasn't my hair. It was The Pretender that I was talking about. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Foo Fighters released their first live CD, Skin and Bones, on November of 2006, with 15 songs recorded at a three-night performance at the uh, Pantages, Pantages, whatever, theater in Los Angeles. The album featured a violinist, Pat Smear joining in, and a three-song encore with Dave playing Best of You, Everlong, and Friend of a Friend. The record debuted at number 21 on the Billboard 200, sold 49,000 copies in its first week and over 357,000 total. Do you have the rift about Shifley and Smear in here? No. Okay, so at this point, they decide that they're bringing... And Shifley's new, right? Chris Shifley, he just joined the band, and he's like living the dream, loving it, loving it, right? Well, they did this interview with him, and then, you know they're getting ready to do this performance, and Dave says that they're bringing Pat Smear back. And Chris is like... Oh, <laughs> because now you have three guitars and for like a rock band that wasn't very common. No, it's it's still not two. Yeah, it's still not. And so Chris is like, OK, well, I guess I'll just do my best and I'll be kicked out and replace the Pat at some point. And then at that show, Pat came up to Chris and was like, I'm not trying to step on your toes. He's like, let's just jam and have fun. And Chris is like, yeah, cool, man. And it was fine ever. And they've had ever three since. guitarists ever since. But yeah. at first, wow. I mean, you could yeah. you could be in his shoes and see yeah. like. Oh, great. Now yeah. Pat's back. The guy who now was I'm, here before. Yeah. Yeah. I got my week of stardom. And now I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Right. Foo Fighters released its sixth album, Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace, in 2007 and recruited producer Gil Norton again, who worked on the band's The Color and the Shape. This was primarily because Dave felt the songs were different from the band's previous input and, quote, had the potential to be something great. So he considered that in, uh, that instead of doing something like the last three albums, the band had to go out of, quote, their comfort zone and, quote, needed someone to push us out of there. And we've talked about that before. That's what producers do. That's I mean, what they, their job is. They push you. And when we go, when we start doing producer episodes, like uh, Ross Robinson, yeah. I mentioned how he pushed Jonathan Davis. Yeah. Like, with his abuse from his father. Oh, yeah. Made so him cry. You can literally hear him crying. Yeah, he's yeah. in there, like, recording, and he's like, your dad's doing this to you, and your dad made you this, and then... You know, he's in the middle of recording and he's just woo, like, you know, <laughs> you can hear it too. It's yeah. crazy. But you, they just try to get the best they, performance. Yeah, they That's push. It. That's Did it. you get pushed a lot with uh, Tomei? Um, vocally, yes. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, was like, he like rough or aggressive? Or There just, were times where like he would, he was hilarious because he would stop and be like, and so you do, a, uh, you know, a, a track or recording, a, you know, on a track or whatever and, or a take and he would just stop and he'd be like, you suck. And he hit record again and you hear click, click, click. You don't even have a chance to re- respond. He would really say oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> he'd be like, you suck. <laughs> and everyone's awesome. looking at me like, you know what? You know? And I'm like, oh, all right, this guy knows. Again, I looked up to him. So I'm like, this guy knows what he's talking about. So next thing you know, I'm doing a different take. And he's like, stop being a bitch. Like <laughs> stuff like that. I swear to God. And, but he, but he did it with this like. He's a little guy. Yeah. Tomei's a tiny little dude. And he's just... So he's not very uh, intimidating physically. Yeah. But the way he made you feel was like, if you don't do this, you're going to be known as the guy that sucked for the rest of your life. <laughs> so that's that's how it went with that's him. a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. It's how it Talk went. about being in the moment, yeah. staring at that microphone grill, 
and having that in your head and having to do your best. Eight hours a day per song. Woo! Eight hours a day. We only did five songs with EP, but it was Woo! eight hours a day. And I was I was screaming at the time on a, on some on Second Chance. Yeah. I did the screaming for that one because you know he who will not be named <laughs> on this show was in there. So preparing to record this album was extensive. Their newest one here. All right. First, Dave started off developing demos with Taylor, but for the first time, he tried to input input vocals and lyrics early in the writing process, which I didn't know about this. So Dave would write the songs and then put the vocals and stuff in. So this is a great time for me to sideline into the teeth thing. Oh, okay. Okay, so when he was younger and he was learning how to play drums, he would do it with his teeth. And in the book, so we have the book that he just released, the Storyteller, and there's a whole like okay, chapter. Wait, wait, hold on, what do you mean he did it with his teeth? So what he would do is like when he would hear beats of like stuff that he liked and he would play with his teeth. So he would go like if there was a drum beat, he'd go. And he's got a big set of chompers on him. That's weird. That's how he would play drums. Like, I don't know why. Is that why he chews gum? Yes. Ah. And so when his mom would take him to the dentist when he was like learning to play drums and stuff, the dentist was like, what are you doing to your teeth? He's like, are you grinding them? He says, no, I'm learning drums. And the dentist is like, okay, well, you're not going to have any teeth in like three years. <laughs> but that's what he did. He would always go. That's crazy. Like to get the beat. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's, I always thought it, that was a cool story. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's awesome. So after finalizing the song's composition with guitarist Chris and bassist Nate, Dave spent two weeks with Gil Norton discussing arrangements, harmony, and melody, and condensing the song ideas. So basically, you had an idea of a song, and then you're like, "Well, you know, this is a little bit too long. This is a little bit too long. Let's make it work better. You know, make Ugh, it flow." Producers. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they then spent four weeks rehearsing and playing quote a song a day from noon to midnight. Taylor stated that, quote, we basically played each of these songs 100 different times, trying every little thing every different way. And that, it, uh, excuse me, and that it was the first time since the color and the shape that, quote, Dave had to deal with someone in the room questioning all of his ideas. Hmm. Dave claimed the choices were for the, uh, the most powerful, dramatic songs and that there was an effort to, quote, make everything sound as natural as possible, just like on the albums we grew up listening to. Okay, so he kind of wanted to go back to Roots, yeah, you yeah. know? On the album's sound, Taylor Hawkins said, quote, we haven't been ready to uh, write a record like this until now. I know that Dave wouldn't have been comfortable putting violins on a song before, but for whatever reasons, it just felt like the right time to explore those things now. The last record, obviously, was half heavy stuff, half acoustic songs. So it really was like two sides of the coin. It sounds obvious, but this time around, we weren't afraid of incorporating everything into one song if it felt right. And it paid off. Yeah. The first single, The Pretender, mm-hmm. topped Billboard's Modern Rock chart for 19 weeks. Other singles from this album were Long Road to Ruin, Let It Die, and Cheer Up Boys. It was nominated for five Grammys, winning Best Rock Album and Best Hard Rock Performance, and won the Brit Award, Britain's version of the American Recording Academy, or the Grammys, and uh, the Best International Album as well. Wow. For Best International Album, yeah. Foo Fighters hit the road again in 2007 on a world tour, and at the European MTV Music Awards, Pat Smear was confirmed as a returned member of the band. They brought him back. June 7th, 2008, saw Foo Fighters headline the world-renowned Wembley Stadium in London, England. And if you haven't seen oh, that, God, so watch good. that. Dear God. Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones from... Come on now. <laughs> from Led Zeppelin. Okay. Joined- He's going to say that from now on. Whenever we ask you, Led Zeppelin is going to be his first answer. <laughs> well, they joined them on stage, and after rocking out the songs Rock and Roll and Ramble On, Dave excitedly shouted, this is amazing, quote, Welcome to the greatest fucking day of my whole entire life. There's- Could you imagine... Yeah, there's such a cool part in that. You can watch it. It's everywhere. The attendance at this amazing sold-out concert 
was 85,000 people. Wow. And they were all singing all the songs. So like that, the one point of Best of You, that song that you loved the I most. I love that damn song. So he's singing it and the crowd's singing it back. And at one point he stops and he's just staring and they're singing it. And he just starts having tears come down his eyes. And like he like just hides his head and he looks back at Taylor and Taylor's just staring. And then he looks back and he's just, he does like the pray symbol. Like he's just like so thankful. Like that was his moment of realization it's that, okay, ridiculous. you made it. Yep. It's right. really cool to see. Like yeah. if you just watch it, you're like, wow, you got to watch so it. Cool. I mean, it's just a, you know, it's a rock. It's them playing live in Wembley Stadium and it's a rock concert or whatever. But you get to see, I mean, especially when like they start pulling out lighters and stuff and like it's 85,000 people. For context, the city that we live in right now mm-hmm. only has, I think, 20,000. Makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. That is a, ton of people and for each the greatest thing as a singer as a vocalist is for someone else to be singing the songs you wrote yeah, the lyrics you wrote thousand people can you imagine <laughs> eighty five thousand people doing that and what it sounds like when you watch the the the, the video or the it's a documentary kind of yeah. yeah for the whole uh, what do you call it not, not a documentary it's a, it's uh, a live performance live performance like, yeah. yeah but it's the whole show right and when you hear it like he yeah like you said he stops and the whole crowd's still going and it's just the most one of the most epic things you'll ever hear it's yeah. just amazing and there's a, a one little quick funny story about the wembley performance that i really love is uh shifley chris shifley before they go on stage and he, he they do this interview and he's like i don't know why it was so stupid he's like but i ate tacos with hot sauce <laughs> and he pulled you know how the, the hot sauce comes in a little like ketchup packet yeah well he ripped it and it squirted in his eyes oh god and he's like, I'm going on in front of 85,000 people at Wembley Stadium in five minutes, and I can't see. Oh, shit. And so, like, when you see I thought it was them, like a gut thing. And when you see him, when they, when they if you watch the live performance, when he first comes out, his eyes are beat red. It looks like... He's high like, as hell. Yeah. So he's like this. He's, like, coming out, and he's, like, squinted eye, and they're all red. And, like, it, it's just That's so That's amazing. Yeah. He's like, out of all the times yeah. of my life, hot sauce, like, if, like you know. That's unreal. Yeah, yeah. So in August 2010, the band began recording their seventh studio album with the return of producer Butch Vig. The album was recorded in Dave's garage, and this is crazy, and you can actually watch footage of this as well because it's part of his uh, documentary yeah. he did, um, uh, with only analog equipment. Okay, Now, we're going to get a little nerdy on you here because uh, Jeff and I are going to get a little bit here. The album won five Grammys and was nominated for six, which is amazing. You won five Grammys off of something that was recorded in your garage on only analog equipment. With no Pro Tools. Right. So planning the seventh album, Dave realized he was bored of the band's typical recording process. Even though the group owned um, 606 Studios West, he is still a punk rocker at heart and found himself yearning for a grittier, whole, uh, like wholly analog, completely analog approach to recording. One night in his hotel room in Melbourne while on tour with them Crooked Vultures, his side project with Josh Holm, Josh Holm and John Paul Jones from... Led Zeppelin. Hey! <laughs> we got this. He hatched a plan to return to recording basics for what was to, uh, to become Wasting Light. Yes. Dave told soundonsound.com, quote, I thought rather than, rather than just record the album in the most expensive studio with the most state-of-the-art equipment, what if Butch and I were to get back together after 20 years and dust off the tape machines and put them in my garage? We've recorded an album somewhere where no one has ever recorded before. We've not uh, we've not gone to the studio where Zeppelin, or we have gone to the Zeppelin or studio uh, where they made in through the outdoor. Uh, we've gone into my garage, Okay. The only person that's recorded in my garage before is me for shitty demos that I've done for the last two records. Okay. The first single from Wasting Light, Rope, amazing song, mm-hmm. 
was released to radio in February 2011. On April 16th, 2011, Foo Fighters released an album of covers, medium rare as a limited edition vinyl for record store day. Wasting Light debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart, becoming the band's first album to do so. Other singles for the album were Walk, Arlandria, These Days, and Bridge Burning. And it's an amazing record. It so is. Walk is the video where they parody Falling Down, the movie Falling Down, yeah. where he's walking around like Michael Douglas with the tie and all that, and just you know, right. striking out everywhere he goes. So going back on this a little bit, using only analog equipment. Okay, I've referenced before about like what it's like to work with tape and how you yeah. have to split tape and stuff like that. So they went... They basically went back 20, 30 years in equipment ways yeah. and and recorded it the uh, the old school way. And uh, I read a, an interview, and I don't know if I have it in here or not, where Butch was like, I did not want to do that. He was like, I that he's like, I have Pro Tools right here. Mm-hmm. It makes everything super easy. He's like, but I got convinced. And then he was like, why not? Let's do this. So they took all this analog equipment. I'm talking everything analog. The, the board, everything was analog. Nothing digital whatsoever. And they recorded this amazing record. And you, when you listen to it, it's just got this great tone to it. Yeah, it's got like a lo-fi yeah. underlying to it. Yeah, it's mm. so good. Alongside Wasting Light's release, the band released a rockumentary directed by Academy Award winner James Mall. The film, titled Back and Forth, chronicled the band's career. Current and past members and producer Butch Vig tell the story of the band through interviews after debuting on March 15, 2011 at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. It was released on DVD three months later. Okay, which that, that's it's awesome. It's yeah. absolutely awesome. The first batch of Wasting Light CDs include pieces of albums of the album's analog tape master. Did you know this? I did not know that. The first batch they sent out. Okay. God, I wish I had one of those. They said if you look inside your CD copy of the band's Wasting Light album. So if you have the CD there mm-hmm. and if you're one of the first fans to pick one of these albums up, chances are it includes an actual piece of the original analog tape the album was recorded on. Oh, wow. How cool would that be? I need to start going to record exchange. Yeah, absolutely. And see if someone not <laughs> yeah, opened up the booklet. Yeah. After announcing a break after touring in support of Wasting Light, Dave said in 2013 that they were starting to write new material for their eighth studio album, Sonic Highways, bringing back Butch Vig. They announced their return to the stage by posting a video of Eric Estrada, one of the main actors from the 70s motorcycle cop show Chips, riding a motorcycle and delivering each member of the band an invitation to play in Mexico. They announced that their eighth... That just goes to show their humor. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? yeah. They announced that their eighth album would be released in November of 2014, and they would commemorate it and their 20th anniversary with an HBO TV series called Sonic Highways, directed by Dave Grohl himself. Eight songs were written and recorded in eight different studios in eight different American cities, with video capturing the history and feel of each town. Each track features contributions from one or more musicians with ties to that city's musical history. And that is in just insane and amazing at the same oh, dude, time. It's so good. Yeah. Like that's one of my favorite albums by them. And even the documentary, like watching the HBO special for when they go to each place and they're, they're interviewing like these old, like 80 year old blues players in from the South, you know, and mm-hmm. these guys got like no teeth and stuff. They're like the hardcore, like old school guitar players. And they're like, ah, man, we used to go down to the levee and swim in the pool. And, blah, blah, blah. and like, so then they would be like, okay, down in the levee, swim in the pool. And like, that would be the lyrics for the song for that city. Oh, wow. It yeah. was awesome. Yeah. Awesome. It's, it's just great. Uh-huh. The album debuted at number two on the billboard 200 with sales of 190,000 copies in the U S it has sold, uh, sold over 617,500 copies in the U.S. and had amazing songs like Something from Nothing, The Feast and the Famine, and Congregation featuring country artist Zach Brown. Pretty awesome. Yeah, it is pretty cool. 
Foo Fighters were the last musical performance on The Late Show with David Letterman on May 20th of 2015 as he retired from his 33-year career as a late-night show host. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, he loved them. Yeah. On June 12, 2015, Dave had the misfortune of falling off the stage in Gothenburg, Sweden, and breaking his leg during the second song. Now, li- this listeners out there, Logan, mm-hmm. this is amazing. It doesn't get any more amazing than what I'm about to tell you. Okay. Okay. The band kept playing while Dave was uh, getting fixed up by the medical staff and then returned to the stage to finish the last two hours of the set while sitting in a chair and having medics take care of his leg. Wow. (laughs) He was flown to London, England after the show and received six metal pins to stabilize the fracture in his leg. So there was speculation after this that Foo Fighters would drop out of their 20th anniversary 4th of July bash after canceling the remaining European dates following his accident. Instead, the band performed for 48,000 people with Dave in a custom-built moving throne which he claimed to have designed himself while high on painkillers, they renamed the following tour the Broken Leg Tour. That's funny. (laughs) That is amazing in so many freaking ways. A, I'm not going to let my fans down. It's just a broken leg. B, I was probably doped up on (laughs) painkillers. You know what I mean? And C, it didn't matter what pain he was in. The show had to go on. Right. You know? Now that, that... Ladies and gentlemen, is a true, true blood artist. If I guarantee you, if Justin Bieber fell off the stage, he'd be done for a month. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. if if not forever, he'd be like, "Mommy," <laughs> like run away. You know what I mean? Well, he wouldn't run away, but yeah. he would hop away. I but, actually heard that Justin seems like a cool guy. From what I've heard from people, yeah, okay, he okay. seems like a cool guy. Yeah, we'll, I, we'll just yeah. ignore that. Okay, well, <laughs> he, does. He, does. he does. So, November twenty fifth, two thousand fifteen, Foo Fighters released a surprise EP named Saint Cecilia available for digital download, and Dave announced an indefinite hiatus. This EP peaked at number three on Billboard's mainstream rock charts, and I remember that mm-hmm. very distinctly when it came out. I was like, mine? Yep. You know, it's yep. free to download. Why not? So Chris Novoselic, who played with Grohl in Nirvana, and uh, what position did he play in Nirvana? Uh, okay. Led Zeppelin. <laughs> that's what I told you that's going to be his answer from now on. <laughs> he was their bass player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He described St. Cecilia as Foo Fighters, quote, statement on how they are the biggest rock band in the world. Novoselic also said that St. Cecilia, quote, is more straight ahead rock that, that is done really well and went on to say that, quote, I went to the Foo's last gig at the Moda Center in Portland and they rocked a packed house. I love the drummer, um, Matt, uh, wait, I love the drummer Matt Sorum from Guns N' Roses. However, he is so wrong in his statement about danger and the Foo somehow lacking it. First of all, uh, first of all, I know about Danger and Rock. I was the bass player in Flipper, and I and survived. I don't know. That must have been another band he was in. Uh, look at a band like Queen, who totally rocked. They were way more dandy than Danger. Queen knows how to rock a stadium. So do the Foo Fighters. He said the Foo Fighters. By the way, it is just Foo Fighters. There's no yes. thud in front of their name. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you'll hear and, and uh, you'll hear big rock on Saint Cecilia. So he was like into it, like supporting them hard. By the way, side note: Chris Novoselic, he is in a new super group. Ooh! That just—they're just like they just released, I think, a full album like a week ago. Okay, who is it? It's him on bass, Kim Thale on guitar from Soundgarden. Okay, Matt Cameron from Pearl Jam on drums. Holy crap! And then the two chicks from the Breeders. What? Yeah, are singing. What do you know? What it's called? Oh, what is it called? I'll have to look it up again. Okay, that's but awesome. I just saw it in the news like a couple weeks ago. Oh, I, I can't like, wait to hear. What this? is this? It's yeah. like it's like the best of best of Seattle. Yeah, like I can't in one, wait to hear one group. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm stoked to hear that. So rumors about Foo Fighters breaking up were everywhere. So the band released a mockumentary video in March 2016 portraying Grohl leaving the band to pursue an electronic music career and Nick Lachey, formerly of 98 Degrees, becoming Mm -hmm. the group's new singer. (laughs) 
ending with, quote, for the millionth time, we're not breaking up, and nobody's going fucking solo. <laughs> it's just amazing how they just do this. It's so great. Dave announced that the band would spend most of 2017 recording their ninth studio album, Concrete and Gold, on June 1st, 2017. Their new single, Run, was released. Oh, on, two, on June 1st, 2017, it was released. Run topped the U.S. Billboard mainstream rock song uh, charts the following month. On June 20th, 2017, the band Sky announced... Sky Neighborhood. That's, huh? that's the jam. What is it? Sky is the Neighborhood. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that that's a great song, yeah. The band announced that their new album, Concrete and Gold, would be released on, in uh, September. On August 23rd, 2017, The Sky is a Neighborhood was released as the second single and topped the mainstream rock chart. The Line was released in uh, uh, promotion of the album and later as the third single in 2018. Concrete and Gold was officially released on September 15, 2017, produced by Greg Kirsten. Concrete and Gold also featured Justin Timberlake on vocals for Make It Right, Sean Stockman of Boys to Men on backing vocals for the song uh, Concrete and Gold, and Paul McCartney on the drums for Sunday Rain. So wow. That's the tour I saw them on. Yeah. And it was awesome. Yeah, that's great. It was so good. Um, so uh, on a side note, too, um, so we're having a big to-do for my wife's graduation from college. Oh, okay. congratulations. And, when is that? Um, very soon. Yeah, we'll talk about it because you're definitely invited. Nice. Yeah. Um, but uh, my, uh, my my friend, our friend Bill. Beer. Pr- producer Pooper Bill from, uh, you know, Bill. He uh, was probably not going to be able to go uh, because he was going to the Foo Fighters. Uh, and uh, he, 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 he called me up or, or talked to me or whatever. He's like, yeah, um, that show's not happening, so I guess I'll be there. And I was like, oh. Yeah. That sucks. That sucks. Sad. So Concrete and Gold has sold over two, uh, 262,000 units, okay? Which, if you think about that doesn't sound like a lot. But I swear to God, I wish I could sell 262,000 units of anything. Right. <laughs> In October of 2019, the band announced that they were recording their 10th studio album based on Dave's demos. In November of 2019, the band began releasing a series of EPs under the umbrella name of The Foo Files largely consisting of previously um, released B-sides and live performances. By February 2020, Dave announced that the new album was complete, but by May it was delayed indefinitely because of a little unforeseen event called the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, of course. Dr. Fauci. Yeah. Saying, quote, we've uh, kind of shelved it for now um, to figure out exactly what's going to happen. By the way, now we got the blue flag on this episode. Well, oh, yeah? Every time you mention COVID on a podcast, well, stop saying it. <laughs> you get a blue flag. Oh, that's fun. Yep, so go. now this one's flagged. Oh, great. Maybe nice. I'll just maybe I'll just take that out. <laughs> Horsty wormer. <laughs> Starting in November of 2020, <laughs> um, promotion for the album ramped up. Its title, Medicine at Midnight, and release date February 5th of 2021 were announced. The band released three singles ahead of, uh, of the album, Shame Shame, No Son of Mine, and Waiting on a War. And I'm not a fan. No? I hate, I hate to admit it, but really? I, I did not buy it. No? No. What did you not like about it? It just it to me it felt subpar compared to everything else they've ever released. Like it felt like okay, Forced. we have to do this. Let here it is really? kind of thing. Uh, yeah, you like, know. To be honest, I don't think I've listened to it, so I should probably not, listen to it. Yeah, it's okay. not. I mean, yeah, yeah. On February tenth, two thousand twenty-one, Foo Fighters were announced as one of the twenty twenty-one Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees in their first year of eligibility, as their debut album had been released twenty-five years prior. On May 12, 2021, Foo Fighters were announced as one of six performer inductees. For Record Store Day on July 17, 2021, the Foo Fighters released an album of disco covers 
called Hail Satan. <laughs> excuse me, Hail Satan, S-A-T-I-N, under the name The DGs. And they dressed like them too, which was amazing. They, they had like the, the platform shoes with the white suit with the with the V for their That's best so hair awesome. Out. Yeah, it was pretty good. The album contains four BGs covers, a cover of Andy Gibbs Shadow Dancing, plus five live versions of Medicine at Midnight tracks. Hmm. On February 25th, 2022, the band released, and that's, uh, let's see, just a few months ago, released a comedy horror film, Studio 666, directed by B.J. McDonnell. It stars the band members as themselves alongside Will Forte, Whitney Cummings, Jeff Garland, and Jenny Ortega. In the movie, the band attempts to record an album in a haunted mansion. Dave is possessed by a demonic spirit, and other members are killed off one by one. It was filmed in the same mansion in which the band had recorded their most recent album, Medicine at Midnight. Studio 666 is currently available on Amazon Prime Video. I have not seen it yet. I was going to watch it. I did get hear bad reviews on it, though. Yeah, so we're waiting until we move, and because I'm doing kind of like what you did, like a, a big TV and yeah. sell around sound. Yeah. And once that's all set up, then we're going to run it and watch yeah. it. Dave has recently released an EP of songs from the film Dream Widow on March 25th, two, 2022. Is that have good? you heard it? No. When we're done with the show, yeah. we'll play some. Is it good? <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. On March 25th, 2022, Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins died in his room at the Casa Medina Hotel in Bogota, Colombia. No cause of death was given. Taylor had suffered chest pain and had 10 substances in his system at the time of his death, including opioids, benzodiazepines, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, and THC. Foo Fighters were scheduled to perform that night at the Estero Picnic Pe uh, Festival as part of the ongoing South American tour. The festival stage was turned into a candlelight vigil for Taylor. A few days later, the band canceled all remaining tour dates. And I tried to look up any more information right now on that, and I can't find anything else. I've they seen haven't, like, two pictures of Dave. So I saw the picture of him where he landed. Where he's walking outside. Back, and he's hugging somebody. Yeah. And he's just, like, crying. Yeah. And then I saw another picture where he was walking outside with his... He was at his mom's house, and he's, like, holding his cell phone, and he just looks terrible. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he's probably... I, I'm telling you, this. they're done. Like, he, he's not going to... He's yeah, not gonna be able to recover after that. It stinks. It does, and, and like I said, I tried to dive into this, and obviously, right now it's uh, April sixteenth, two thousand twenty-two, mm -hmm. still pretty fresh. And so, you know, when we get more information, we'll definitely let everybody know. So, according to Sony Music Japan, Foo Fighters sold over thirty-two million albums worldwide, including nine million sixty-five thousand in the U.S. and five million two hundred sixty thousand in the United Kingdom. The best-selling album by Foo Fighters is Greatest Hits which sold over 2,775,000 copies. What if you only do you know how much uh, they're worth? Each one one? Answer. I do not have that. Correctly. I got it. Do you? Yeah. All right, what do you, you got? answer correctly? So, obviously, Dave Grohl's worth the most because of Nirvana money. Yeah. Right? $320 million. Oh, boy, that'd be nice. Taylor Hawkins was worth $50 million. Yeah. And then the rest of the members are around $30, $40 million. Wow, that's crazy. I'll take any of those. 320 million. Any of those numbers? Three. Can, Logan, do you want three hundred? Let's up 20 million. <laughs> 20 million. This week in music news. All right. This week is April 16th, 2022. Yes, it is. So not a lot in the news. Uh, I had to really dig for some decent stuff. Uh, first of all, we got the Deftones, and I'm just pre-warning you guys, whenever the Deftones come up in the news, we're going to talk about it, because they are one of my favorites. Same. With the Foo Fighters. Love the D-Tones. Well, I don't know if you know this or not. Oh, boy. 
the bass player left. Wait, his name is Vega, the guy that the replaced, guy that replaced G. G. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Deftones debut new lineup on first night of long-awaited tour with Gojira. Gojira, is that how you say Gojira. it? Gojira. Yeah. They're a yeah. French metal band. They're like, are yeah. they like progressive? Like, yeah, yeah kind of prog yeah. rock kind of. Yeah. Well, pro- metalist. They're metal. Oh, yeah, they yeah, metal. I know yeah, they're metal. metal. They're, yeah. they're actually pretty awesome. Really, Gojira kills it. They're they're, they're a French metal band. They just kill. It. I saw yeah. I saw them live. Uh, I think they opened up for Camira. Uh, I think when I saw them okay. years ago, and uh, they were awesome. Nice. Yeah. So the band have officially added former Marilyn Manson bassist Fred Sablin to their touring lineup. Now, if you're not familiar with Marilyn Manson, he's in the news. Oh, yeah, Man, bad he's, stuff. He's going down quick. Yeah. It, it, none of it shocks me either, to be honest with you. Right, it's Marilyn Manson. Yeah, none, none of what's... He's alleged... Getting Harvey Weinstein and <laughs> yeah. Bill Cosby, basically. Yeah. Oh. All the the things that are alleged about him, none of it would surprise me if it came out true. He was married to Elijah Wood's sister. Uh, what is her name? Evan Rachel Wood. Oh, really? And she's coming out saying that he was doing some... Messed up like stuff. abusive stuff to her, like dog collars and handcuffs and stuff, that, oh. like against her will. It's Marilyn Manson. I, that's exactly. I know. I know. Right. Who, like why? Not I saying, felt bad like thinking it. None of but it I'm is glad okay. You're saying it. Yeah none, I, of, yeah. none of it is okay. But like, if, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. If you get into a relationship with Marilyn Manson and you don't think he, at some point in time, he's not right. going to pull out a dog collar and be like, the beautiful people. You were. <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? Like you, you are delusional. Like yeah. I'm sorry, you're delusional. So he's like, he's getting canceled everywhere. He's going down like a. He'll be an icon's ship. episode. So they day. picked up their bass. Deftones picked up his bass player, okay. uh, Sablin, who is best known for a former bass bassist of Marilyn Manson, kicked off the tenure with Chino Marino, who is the singer of the Deftones. Yeah. Uh, at the band's Portland show at Moda Center on Thursday night, April 14th. So Deftones are touring right now, people. That's awesome. When they come around to your you town, you gotta see him. You got to see him. Please. Yeah, you got to see him. It will change your life. Well, I had two, uh, like I said, the first time I saw him, I was completely disappointed because Chino's voice was just not there when he's hitting those big notes. But then when I saw him the second time, he killed it. And I was just like, okay, this is the guy that I love. You know what I mean? Because oh, I yeah, love, dude, White Pony is hands down one of my all-time favorite records of all time. Yeah. I mean, you could put it up against just about anything, and I can listen to that front to back every song. I, I absolutely agree. love it. Uh, next in the news, I don't know if we have any Radiohead fans out there. But they are about to debut a new album, finally. Uh, it's going to be called uh, Smile. Smile. Smile? Yeah. Is and it just going to be them playing Creep over and over again? I know. So, like, <laughs> I wanted to make a joke about this, but I know, like, there's some hardcore radio f- head fans. And listen, that's fine. Everyone's going to, yeah. basically going to be computer noises and the guy going, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, people, people are going to be like, oh, my God, it's life changing. And, 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 and always people, when uh, listeners out there, all right, um, when you listen to us talk and us base our, and, and voice our opinions on whatever, remember, these are people that made it way more successful than we ever did. Yeah. So <laughs> we're allowed to bitch if we want. To. It's not <laughs> jealousy. It's yeah. it, believe me, it's, it's a little jealousy for me. I mean, maybe financially, but right, right. The, yeah, yeah, I'm not a fan. Very avant garde. I've never like, been a fan. Very avant garde. It's like you get high and you take a paintbrush and you listen yeah. to Radiohead. It's while yeah, you're painting. Okay. Radiohead like, is, is like the the modern version of like the Grateful Dead. Yeah, yeah. it's Dewey Cox when he does his solo thing yeah. with the goats yeah. and the yeah. gongs and yeah. Okay. Anyway, I can't build you a candy house. <laughs> so it'll ra- melt. Radiohead fans, you have an album coming soon. So. That's cool. That's cool though for them. Yeah, I thought who, that was cool. Who knows? It might be cool. Um, and then last, like I said, there wasn't a lot in the news. Um, I thought this was cool, and it relates to somebody we just covered. Uh, the Queen guitarist Brian May pays tribute to Buddy Holly with a cover of Maybe Baby. Oh, awesome. So that's going to be released here in a couple weeks, and oh, it's okay. going to be his version of it. I don't know who is uh, singing on it. It just says he played the guitar and, and kind of 
captain you. captain the whole thing. So. What did we talk about? Um, Buddy Holly was our second episode, mm-hmm. so two episodes ago, mm-hmm. and we talk about how his tenure in music was so small, but his impact was so large that he's ninety some years later, or whatever it is, or eighty years later, people are still covering his songs. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. And so, well, well, Brian May says that he that song "Maybe Baby" is the reason he started playing guitar. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. And you're talking about Queen, one of the biggest bands on the face of the earth. Yep. And, and, and if you if you're unfamiliar, Buddy Holly. if you're unfamiliar with the story of Buddy Holly, go back and listen to episode two because it is pretty freaking awesome. Oh yeah, you know. And then finally, Ooh. I am very very happy to announce that there has been no notable musician deaths. Yay, that's, that's good. good. So that's we good. made it. We made it, boys. Yeah, that's good. Another that's week. Good. Hey, um. So listen. Uh, on a side note here, Patreon. If you guys want to sign up for our Patreon or whatever, we're actually going to be doing a uh, a quiz that Logan has put together for Jeff and I to uh, see if we can uh, name that tune, I guess. Yeah. But we're also going to be debuting and talking about Jeff's solo record that oh, he put out yes. recently, right? Yeah. Uh, Code November. Yeah. Right? And, uh, uh, the album's called Anthem Drive. Anthem Drive. And it's kind of like my homage to the 80s. Yeah. So, so we're going to be doing that. So sign up for Patreon if you haven't done that yet. You get uh, both uh, this show and the Midnight Trains uh, bonuses in there for one price, five bucks or more. If you, if you want to give us more, we're not going to say no. You know right, I mean? right. We're not going to do that. So yeah, make sure you sign up over there. You can do that. Just uh, go to the website, iconsandoutlaws.com, and you can do that. I so, li- I'd like to ask a favor, too, okay. of either the Patreon or the listeners. Either okay. or. Can we get a donation going to get logan a led zeppelin t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> i want him to have you know the, the you know the, the either the one with the angel with the wings yeah, yeah or the yeah. one with the zeppelin on it oh yeah and i want him to start wearing it around so people are like dude you like led zeppelin and he's gonna be like uh <laughs> name five of their songs yeah, exactly <laughs> led zeppelin led zeppelin led zeppelin led zeppelin and led zeppelin <laughs> but i want to get him a shirt we need to get so him let's a shirt make that happen sure. guys absolutely so make sure to follow like and subscribe to all of our social media channels just search for icons and outlaws wherever you listen to your favorite podcast and connect with your favorite people we produce another amazing podcast called the midnight train and if you're into unsolved true crime the paranormal or anything mysterious and can laugh at the craziness in all of it we think you'll love it which by the way the last episode was interesting man with uh, Jack all the, the different oh, yeah. suspects. It's insane. It, we, yeah, we just uh, recently covered a uh, two-part series on um, Jack the Ripper, and we did it, obviously, in our way, yeah. but, man, there's so many suspects. Yeah. It is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And it's a little bit different of a show than this one, but uh, it's uh, it's it's weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's weird. It gets goofy. So, yeah, you make We kind of do it all, folks. So, yeah. like, you know, you want music stuff, you come here. That's you right. Want, you want the creepy and absolutely. true crime, you go to Midnight Train. 100%. And then eventually we'll get our movie podcast going. Yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. I can only imagine what that one's going to be like. Yeah. We're not going to do it. We'll just... <laughs> umbrella it right? <laughs> oh, okay yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah someone else will do it for right, us right? right so you can find links to that and all the other great content we're putting out over at accidentaldads.com or at iconsandoutlaws.com or at the midnight train podcast.com and uh, accidental dads is our centralized network hub lastly please consider supporting both shows by signing up to be a patreon producer over at patreon.com forward slash accidental dads or at any of the websites i mentioned previously where for as little as five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes, exclusive content, and discount codes on merchandise for both shows. There's going to be some really cool t-shirts for Icons and Outlaws. I have a really great idea of a series that I want to do because I design all the stuff, and uh, I, I really have an idea. And if you have an idea for a show topic for Icons and Outlaws, please let us know. Yeah, you know, if there's like somebody you're like, man, I'd love to hear more about, um, well, Stevie Nicks, you know, who's on deck right now, or Madonna. Or maybe even the more like uh, you know lesser known um, 
you know, singer songwriters and I mean, it's, it's simple, guys. There's just three that we will not do, and that's MGK, <laughs> Alanis Morissette, and Disturbed. Okay, so we're doing those three next. Never. Well, <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So, thanks for listening to our episode on Foo Fighters, and in the immortal words of Dave Grohl, that's one of the great things about music. You can sing a song to eighty-five thousand people, and they'll sing it back for eighty-five thousand different reasons.
Hey there, listener. We hope you enjoyed our song. And remember, you can listen to it anytime you want to on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to your favorite music. Just look up Icons and Outlaws. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.